So the point of Bitcoin is basically to be sound money. And there are other goals that we have now. We care obviously about like scalability, say, and we care about privacy. But soundness always comes first. Hello there from Bedford, the Bitcoin mecca of the world. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have a second discussion looking at Bitcoin and Ethereum, going a bit more technical, and this time I've got Andrew Polstra, Taj Dreiger, and Vitalik Buterin to look at this. I also asked Patrick McCory to come on and help co-host this one, as it is a bit more technical, and you know, I'm not very technical. But before we get into that, I do have a message from all my amazing sponsors. So first up today, I am welcoming back Least Authority as a sponsor to the podcast. Now, this one is for you techies out there, the builders who are creating applications. Least Authority is a security consulting company who are pushing the limits of how to build privacy-respecting solutions. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design. And they can help you improve the security of your wallet application, key management solution, layer 2 protocol, P2P network design, use of cryptography, and much, much more. If you want to boost your security strategy, you can arrange a no-obligation call to find out how Least Authority can help you on your next project. Just head over to their website and hit the schedule a call button, and that's at leastauthority.com, which is L-E-A-S-T-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. Next up, we have sportsbet.io, the best in online gaming, and with the Premier League back this week, like most of you, I am looking forward to Liverpool retaining their title this season, and also Tottenham having another disappointing season, another trophyless season. And we also have some extra excitement this season. I'll be following Southampton with interest as sportsbet.io have confirmed that they are the main club partner and front of shirt sponsors for them this season. And also, they are placing a Bitcoin logo on the shirt, not on the shoulder, not on the sleeve, slap bang in the middle of the shirt. Yes, every week, billions of people around the world watching Premier League football are going to be seeing the Bitcoin logo. I'm going to be working with them on some promotions and giveaways too, but if you are interested in gaming and you want to use Bitcoin, then head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io. And also, let's talk about Casa, who are the best in Bitcoin security. With Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. I am a Casa customer and I'm using it to protect both my personal and company Bitcoin holdings. The peace of mind you get with this type of protection is very much worth paying for. And with Casa, they have a product for every Bitcoiner. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet for only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 3 of 5 multi-sig, the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering. This includes a customized personal security review, inheritance, and of course, their best-in-class security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. Find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, so onto the show and... Following the show I made a couple of weeks ago about Ethereum and Bitcoin, I got some feedback from people saying it could have covered some more technical details and it is unfair to judge Bitcoin and Ethereum as like for like they are built for different purposes. Now, as anyone who is a regular listener of the show knows, I'm not a believer in Ethereum. I don't have any reason to use it and own any. But a recent comment from Shinobi in my 250th episode that says all Bitcoin are Bitcoin, including wrapped Bitcoin, 
I felt I wanted to understand a little bit more about Ethereum. As listeners know, I'm not technical, so when it comes to the technical arguments, I just can't have these discussions. So I got a few people on to have it for me. I asked Andrew Polstra and Taj Dreiger to come on and bat for the Bitcoin side and Vitalik Buterin to come back and talk from the Ethereum side. I also asked Patrick McCory to co-host himself an Ethereum proponent. Now this one does get really techy at times and it's nearly three hours long. I was definitely lost for a bit. And uh, yeah, for some of you, it might go over your head as well. But it was still a great discussion. I hope you enjoy it. If you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. as hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, have a great week and I'll see you soon. Right, big group of us this evening. So, well, welcome to the show. Uh, how are you all? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing pretty good. How are you, Taj? Good. Yep. Lots of fun. Almost fall, getting cooler. It's nice. Patty, you well? I'm good too. What a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty well. I'm enjoying the isolation. It's been pretty nice. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm used to traveling. I'm used to hanging out with these people in person. Anyway, I did a did a show recently um, where I had Vitalik on with Samson, and depending how you th- kind of depending on your position, you either thought that was a very good show or it was an absolute car crash. Um, Samson did exactly what I expected him to do, but it didn't allow some, I think, a bit more nuanced discussion in some areas. And so I spoke to Vitalik and I said. Um, is there anyone else you'd like to talk to where we could maybe just kind of advance a couple of areas? And he said, I'd be very happy and interested to talking with uh, both Taj and Andrew, respect them both greatly. And uh, Andrew and me and uh, Taj and I have also recorded some great shows. And then obviously, Paddy, you put out that you're willing to help moderate, which is great because an awful lot of things tonight we will talk about I won't understand. Um, first time I've had a co-host for a show like this, which would be interesting. Um, so I'm going to hand over a lot to you, Paddy. Um, but I will dump. It, uh, I will jump in occasionally and just say, look, come on, I need a need a bit of a better explanation than that. Um, the only uh, starting point that I really have is just this is going to be kind of a repeat of a question for you from last time, Vitalik. But I also think you should answer, Paddy. And then, um, but. Uh, but it's the same question, but for the other protocol for both Taj and Andrew. And this is my starting point, and then I'll hand over to you, Paddy. Is that okay? Yeah. So one of the things that came out of the last interview is people said it was a you, – you framed it as a Bitcoin kind of versus Ethereum show, Pete, and they're trying to do two different things, which is, which is a fair point. But it's really interesting to hear people from their opinion what – what they think something's trying to achieve. So, Andrew, starting for you, with you, with Bitcoin, for you, what is Bitcoin trying to be and what's it trying to achieve? So, that's an interesting question that has a bit of a bit of history to it, I guess. So, originally, of course, Bitcoin was created by by Satoshi. The first block that was mined had that quote from the the Times, the London Times article, talking about bank bailouts in uh, in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine. And that sort of established the the sort of ethos of Bitcoin as being sort of like a, a libertarian, like sound money. The goal of Bitcoin was sort of to be an alternative form of money where the inflation schedule or where the monetary policy was set in stone. And it was um, rather than being controlled by, by political considerations or by central banks or whatever. And kind of weirdly, the idea that Bitcoin was electronic was almost like downplayed. It almost wasn't an important thing. The idea was there would be some sort of money that anybody could use around the world and that you could use, but also that you could use it online. So right now, 
the money that we're familiar with using online is basically all like it's uh you're using a credit card you're writing checks or whatever the money that you can use on the internet is not a bearer instrument bitcoin is a bearer instrument meaning that you can hold it if you physically have the bitcoin then you control the bitcoin and unlike other objects where when you physically hold them you have them you're able to transact this across the world using the internet so you're not forced to go uh go to some third party to enable your transactions so the point of bitcoin um to be brief is basically to be sound money and there are other goals that we have now we care obviously about like scalability say and we care about privacy but soundness always comes first in bitcoin's mind and money also also always comes first bitcoin isn't trying to be a world computer bitcoin isn't trying to be like a token platform bitcoin isn't trying to be like a dns server or like a file storage place or, or any of the other ideas that that people have come up with over the years and tried to use bitcoin for it's really it's trying to be money and it's trying to be sound and i guess that's my answer and just one thing to ask uh, to add on to that would you said it's trying to be sound money, but we also care about privacy. We also care about scaling. But would you not say privacy and scaling are um, characteristics of sound money? So when I say soundness, what I mean very specifically here is that you can verify the history of the system. You can verify that the current distribution of money, whatever that looks like, okay. is the honest distribution of money. Nobody like came in and then shuffled stuff around. There was no like secret meetings that caused the money to move around. You sort of know where it's coming from and where it's going. I would say privacy and scalability are, are critical to being useful money, are, are critical okay. to being a, a money that enables a bunch of other societal goals. But just the word sound, I mean that in a very narrow sense. Okay. Taj, how about yourself? Would you uh, agree with Andrew or do you have anything else to add on to that, any different opinions? Yeah, I can I can add a little. I generally agree that that's what it's about, you know, sound money. Um, it's the the blockchain stuff. So most of the, where I work, I guess, a lot of times I talk to people about, you know, blockchain um, and there's a lot of, you know, students at the business school and things like that. And they're like, oh, but there's this blockchain stuff and you've got all this data and you've got traceability and you've got these things. It's like, yeah, those are all bad. Those are all liabilities. Uh, we can do identity on the blockchain. I'm like, yeah, no, all of these properties are detrimental to Bitcoin, right? The goal of Bitcoin was, as Andrew said, sound money. And all of these technical things that people have sort of latched onto are like sort of warts on the system that we are trying to get rid of and probably you never can totally get rid of. Um, so yeah, the, the blockchain is a liability. The traceability is a liability. I also think that the set in stone part is really interesting. Um, I personally don't really care about like, you know, only 21 million Bitcoins. And maybe that's like sacrilegious, but like to me, if, Satoshi had said, okay, the, the block reward is, you know, one Bitcoin per block forever. I'm like, okay, fine. Like, it, to me, it doesn't, like, really make a huge difference. But I understand that, like, one of the properties of Bitcoin is that it's really hard to change. And, like, the set in stone, to some extent, is a societal thing, right? Like, anyone can change the code and run different stuff. But the fact that, like, we all sort of agree that we can't means that we can't. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm trying to defend the monetary policy of Bitcoin, I guess, even though I don't really care about it. Um, so that's sort of an interesting like aspect of how what makes it sound money. I think that's a very controversial point. I, I think I'll, I think you and I will have to talk about that another time because uh, some people will. I mean, some people will actually Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I think it just isn't as as big of a deal as most people make it out to be. But yeah, I, but I'm fine with it. So. Okay, so just uh, Nem flipping over to Ethereum, and sorry Vitalik, because I know you did this last time, but perhaps you'll perhaps it'll be a new improved version, but. Can you can you answer the same question for Ethereum? 
Uh, yeah, so in Ethereum, the protocol was, uh, and the idea was born in this kind of environment where, you know, you had Bitcoin and you had Namecoin, which was this um, early version of like basically the thing that we call, uh, well, predecessor to things like ENS and Handshake and other things that exist right now. Um, we had covered coins trying to issue assets on blockchains and other protocols. And so the the original goal of the of uh, Ethereum was basically to try to see can we like basically take a blockchain and take the properties that a blockchain provides and uh, kind of generalize them more right and basically instead of just being able to create a uh, uh, a system of money where you can uh, kind of verify the history, ensure that the rules are going to be followed, ensure that the rules are going to be hard to change and all of these things. Uh, try to apply that to other kinds of applications as well, right? And try to uh, kind of create a platform where you can build applications more generally where you can kind of agree on a set of rules and unless, you know, the people who are changing or, or who are participating in the application are going to all agree to like basically... Uh, either upgrade it using the, the application's own rules or just switch to another one. Like, unless they do that, then the rules that they are kind of participating under are going to be the thing that they agreed to, and there aren't any uh, kind of sticky backdoor ways to go in and change it. And, and so the idea is that that's something that's obviously valuable for a currency. It's valuable for a lot of uh, kind of financial applications going beyond the currency. It's valuable for thing potentially non-financial applications and if things like domain names are uh, probably um, being a big one and so just uh, kind of create this open playing field and see what people uh, end up building with it so so patty you're you're a fellow irishman although you're from the northern part right yeah i'm from belfast yeah wonderful little belfast you can tell by this strong accent some people don't realize but if you're uh if you're some irish and you know both listen look um Taj and Andrew have both been on my show before. People know who they are, and people will know Vitalik because, um, yeah, he's Vitalik. <laughs> Come on. Uh, but people might, might not, not everyone listening will know who you are. Can you just let people know who you are, what you do, Paddy? Yeah, so um, I got started in the cryptocurrency world back in 2013. I was an undergraduate at the time studying cryptography. And my advisor told me, my PhD advisor, or soon to be PhD advisor, told me about this thing called Bitcoin being used in the dark web. And I thought, you know, that sounds quite interesting. Let's jump into that. And so when I first discovered Bitcoin, there were really two different narratives that were happening at the same time. One was the payment narrative. You know, we go on dark, you know, dark, uh, Silk Road, you buy some whatever, I don't know, candy on Silk Road and it gets sent to your house. And it advertises global decentralized anonymous currency. And obviously, as we learned in the next year or two, is the most traceable public currency in the world. So that was like the payment side, and that's why I got interested in. And then there's the second narrative that both Taz and Andrew were talking about, which is this, you know, protection from fractional reserve banking and limited inflation and being able to you know, see the money supply and being sound money. But the question is, why are cryptocurrencies, why do they give you this sound money property? And that's because of, you know, the cryptography in the sense that I can download the entire transcript of Bitcoin. I can download all the transactions that have ever occurred. And I can independently verify everything that's happened in the past. And that's sort of like the strong narrative that comes out in Bitcoin. Now, so far in Bitcoin, that's only really useful for financial transactions where you want to send coins back and forth. And partly for Lightning, which we can talk about soon, which is like a special type of smart contract. Uh, so what got me excited about Ethereum was that you could take this idea where I could verify 
everything the counterparty is doing, I can hold them accountable and you can actually extend that functionality. So one great example of that is Uniswap. I can go on the Uniswap website. I can swap, you know, my my ETH to Sushi and Sushi to uh, to some other terrible token. But I can do it in a way where I don't have to trust anyone and I can verify everything that's going on. So now would you actually have a verifiable agreement where you don't have to trust the counterparty? So it sort of takes the idea in Bitcoin where everything's verifiable and then brings that forward to Ethereum. Which is what got me interested in it. Right. So that's okay. sort of the answer to, you know, why is Bitcoin interesting and why is Ethereum also interesting? So the angle I'm always interested on these shows is, and I expect today we're going to go quite technical and, you know, I think I don't need to always repeat how untechnical I am. But um, the reason that I'm interested in these shows and for my audience is that based on the information that you may provide today, people might treat this as, uh, uh, an opinion that might help them make a decision whether they want to invest in something or not. Um, but at the same time, I do understand today we might get into some quite technical things. So I'm I'm going to hand over a lot of this to you, Paddy. I might dip in occasionally and say, come on, explain that a bit for me. For anyone listening who doesn't know me, um, I've invested a lot of uh, cryptocurrencies historically. I don't anymore. I only hold Bitcoin and that, that's all I care about. But I have bought uh, Ethereum in the past, a long time ago, and I did make some money of it. But I, I took the podcast a Bitcoin only, and that's what I'm focused on now. Uh, I don't have a huge interest in Ethereum, but um, but but I am willing to like listen to these conversations. And it would be really interesting. Just for me, this is just very interesting to see Taj, uh, Vitalik, and Andrew all kind of like talk about things. And I, I don't know what's going to come, but I'm very interested in that. So Paddy, I'm going to hand over to you and I'll, I'll just dip in as and when uh, I, I think it might be required. That's awesome. Um, I can sort of start off with this sort of Bitcoin to Ethereum transition now. So I think throughout the show, we're going to cover really basic three topics. One is the origin story of Bitcoin and Ethereum, which we sort of just done in a way. Then we're going to move into sort of how both systems are like Frankenstein-like systems and they're all, they sort of, uh, they're both sort of really ugly and horrible under the hood. And how well can we build self-custody protocols on top? When I say self-custody, it means I can interact with the counterparty. I don't trust them. I still hold full custody of my coins. And afterwards, because everyone here is basically a researcher, uh, obviously, so what I'm going to move on to is sort of future scalability of both networks and how they're you know both approached by every everyone in this call. So I think that'll be quite interesting for everyone. But what I want to first start off with is the Bitcoin world. So like, Bitcoin to Ethereum. So as we know, Bitcoin had these narratives, protection from inflation and limited and fractional reserve banking. That was clearly in the white paper in the Genesis block. It was on the Bitcoin website in 2009 to 2010, 2011. I think it was removed around 2012. And also this idea of this truly peer-to-peer payment network. But as sort of Vitalik alluded to, there was this third thing evolving on Bitcoin, which Satoshi never really planned out, which were these several new applications Sort of like you know, sort of like Color Coin, will eventually become Omni Ledger, and also games like Satoshi Dice. Now I remember, I remember Satoshi Dice. That was about 2012, and that's when I first started looking at Bitcoin uh, before I did my PhD. And Satoshi Dice wasn't really welcomed on Bitcoin at all. It was very hostile. It was this basic gambling game where I send a transaction to the, basically the casino gives me a hash. I send my bet inside the Bitcoin transaction. If I win the bet, they'll return the transaction to me with you know my prize. Otherwise, I can verify why I lost. Uh, and that was considered spam on the network. Um, it was filling up the blocks. And there was one really prominent core developer who I won't name. And he's also very active in the mining area where he um, basically threatened to censor these Satoshi Dice gambling games. 
So I wanted to get your opinion on this, Vitalik. What was it like when you moved into, you know, you obviously picked up on a lot of this for Bitcoin and you thought, well, maybe we could build a new platform for doing this on Ethereum. What was your take on that? How did this influence Ethereum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I remember Satoshi Dice quite well. And it's uh, definitely, I thought uh, at the time it was uh, a wonderful uh, kind of use case of the blockchain, a kind of clear demonstration of how, you know, if you have this uh, decentralized platform, you can get a lot of these extra security guarantees that you would not be able to uh, kind of get in uh, a more traditional way, right? And I mean, it even used the blockchain uh, in a kind of, going a little bit beyond as a payment rail, right? Like, as I recall, it even used block hashes um, for like one of the inputs to the, uh, uh, to the randomness. Uh, so yeah, like it's clearly using it for one small thing that's other than just a, a way of moving money between you and Satoshi Dice and back. Um, so uh, when I was uh, first uh, starting Ethereum, this was actually in the uh, context of when covered coins and master coin and some of these and even later protocols that were trying to use the Bitcoin blockchain that uh, were happening. And they were uh, taking this uh, kind of non-currency use of the Bitcoin blockchain idea even further, right? They were saying, like, let's send transactions on chain. And from the point of view of the Bitcoin protocol, these transactions just look like they yeah, kind of have some junk data. But from the point of view of our own protocol, from the point of view of this uh, piece of code that we're going to send to users and that users can download and run themselves, they can basically kind of interpret the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, So, you know, imagine uh, creating a language where like the way you speak a language is you kind of say a sentence in English, but when you say your sentence in English, like you choose synonyms so that if you take the third letter of every word, you actually get a sentence in some other language, right? It's that kind of hiding going on. And they would uh, kind of metaphorically read the third letter of every transaction, so to speak, and see, you know, are there these operations in this other protocol? And based on that, uh, the transfer of uh, issued token and financial transactions involved issues. And to be fair, like there's, there's a lot of people saying you know, I support ideas and they were mean and they were just me and so forth. Like that, that's not what happened, right? That's uh, like, we, it was more that like, there was this existing climate where there were a lot of people who were uh, kind of not in favor of uh, these uh, kinds of applications and said things like, you know, the blockchain should be used for the, uh, uh, for the currency. And so I figured, okay, well, it's uh, better to uh, kind of, start the platform on top of a, uh, a, a kind of community that wants these things to happen. So at first I was considering the prime coin uh, community. This was one of the bigger altcoins back then. Um, and then I yeah, was also, uh, well, starting to do that, but then the Ethereum community kind of got much bigger than I expected. And like that, that's when I realized that, you know, Hey, there's actually enough developer mass that it's uh, possible to create a separate blockchain. And so we uh, ended up creating a separate blockchain and going from there. That's pretty cool. So just to summarize that, because that was quite a long answer, I guess there's two points to it, isn't there? One, the issue with MasterCoin and ColorCoin was that you, you basically, this new protocol was added on top of Bitcoin. Bitcoin itself was not aware this existed. It was unable to enforce the rules. So if I wanted to, I could try to make myself, you know, mint myself MasterCoins, and the Bitcoin blockchain wouldn't do anything about that. All the validation was client-side. So my software that would read all the MasterCoin transactions would have to enforce the rules and Bitcoin couldn't do that for me. 
And obviously for Ethereum, you wanted the, the platform to enforce the rules, not necessarily the users right. of the protocol or the app. And then the second one was that the community itself, you, you sort of had this idea that Bitcoin was sort of hostile, not hostile, this is more welcoming of the idea. You enter the prime coin community because they're more welcome to it. Then you thought, well, actually, I've got enough critical mass. Let's just go for our own blockchain and see what we can build. Mm-hmm. Cool. And um, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Andrew, jump in. Yeah, so, so let me re- uh, respond to a, a couple of things that Vitalik brought up. Um, so as you say, there's sort of two, two things that Vitalik was discussing. One was a counterparty or, or colored coins or whatever, and the other was, was Satoshi Dice. Um, regarding colored coins, part of the, the opposition to, to this was not only an opposition to using the chain for too many things, but specifically using the uh, Bitcoin blockchain or any particular blockchain for multiple assets introduces some, uh, some scary changes to the incentive model where your minor fees are always denominated in Bitcoin. They're always denominated in the primary currency. But there's a concern that I think I'd see applies to Ethereum as well, where if you have an ecosystem of many different tokens, and that ecosystem is much larger in terms of economic activity than your primary um, currency, then you have a situation where your chain security, which is incentivized in terms of the primary coin, is, um, is, is, is paid for by something that is different than the asset that people who are actually using the chain are using. So there's this disconnect between the usage and and how you pay for it. Um, So that was part of the opposition to colored coins. But there was also, and I think this is really much more what Vitalik encountered, an opposition that we saw both in in Counterparty and in Satoshi Dice and so forth, of using the Bitcoin chain for things that weren't Bitcoin because this was putting work on Bitcoin validators who simply wanted to be validating Bitcoin. And one thing, so my recollection of, of Satoshi Dice, I want to, I just want to really bring up this story, is at the time, awesome. uh, pardon, touch? It was an awesome, go ahead. Yeah. Um, um, so when Satoshi Dice came out, um, as Vitalik maybe described, um, the, the way it worked basically is you would send some coin to, uh, to the Satoshi Dice server, and then if you win, they flip a coin or whatever, and maybe they send your coin back with, uh, with some extra coins. So every single bet required a transaction, and, and every um, win required an additional transaction. And this was, uh, as, and as Patty mentioned, there was a certain Bitcoin developer who at the time had a significant amount of hash power who really did not like this and, and was, was actively trying to... Um, uh, to the extent that he was able to, um, which at the time was was non-trivial, and, and hopefully today we would hope that individual miners have have trivial ability, but that's another thing. Was trying to censor these transactions. The issue that I had with Satoshi Dice was that it was so needlessly inefficient because at the time we had this scheme called probabilistic transactions, and you can Google this Bitcoin Wiki probabilistic transactions. Um, this idea from like Mike uh, uh, the Cassius coin guy, Mike Cadwell, I think. Um, from like 2011 or 2012, where you could do a probabilistic payment, a probabilistic payout, using only a single transaction for people who win. So there are a couple pieces of this. I'm not going to go into the details, but my my point is that um, there are sort of maybe more efficient ways that Satoshi Dice could have been implemented that wasn't needlessly producing a, a tremendous amount of transactions. And similarly, the way that Counterparty and the way that other colored coin schemes were implemented there were components of this that were also needlessly uh, inefficient. And so there's simultaneously this viewpoint, there are two pieces to the opposition, I guess. One was this opposition from Bitcoin people 
to using Bitcoin, the Bitcoin chain for anything that wasn't Bitcoin. But the other was this desire to like really just minimize what's hitting the chain entirely. Um, and since, since I don't want to like take up all the time, I'll just say you, you can Google. I have a talk uh, from Scaling Bitcoin in 2017 called Using Chains, What Chains Are Good For, that I think we'll come back to in a later section of this uh, discussion. Um, about just really trying to, uh, trying to not use a block, as much as you can get away with it, as much as you can get away with it to do cool stuff without actually using the blockchain or like really minimizing the amount that you touch the blockchain. This is one of the points I just want to jump in. So I think what you're trying to get at here, is, Paddy, is that essentially block Bitcoin is meant to be censorship resistant and that is somebody's trying to, whatever you think of Satoshi dies, if it's if fees are being paid, if the blockchain is available for you to use as you want, nobody should be able to censor this. But at the same time, I'm also thinking like Bitcoin's very early at this point. I mean, I've read the old Bitcoin talk uh, threads about this, where there was seen as a lot of spam on the network. So uh, what would happen, do you think, Andrew, if somebody was to do something similar today? Or do you think the network is mature to a point now where it's basically not affordable because of the fees to transact? That's a good question. So the, the reason that Satoshi Days went away is that the specific mechanism they were using, which is chaining unconfirmed transactions off of each other, uh, caused them to be just like easily exposed to uh, double spend attacks. And I think they were actually like attacked in a pretty dramatic way and okay. had to fold. I think it's probably possible to do something like Satoshi Dice, maybe a bit slower where you didn't have that issue. And in which case, your question is more interesting. Suppose somebody tried to do that today. And I think what they would run into is that if they tried to do something that gratuitously inefficient, they would just be priced out of the market. They, you wouldn't be able to run a service like Satoshi Dice. Um, unfortunately, um, if you are, say, a large exchange, uh, say, running a very high-margin Bitcoin business, you are able to do tremendously inefficient transaction patterns. Um, and you can just afford it. Right now, any, any large Bitcoin exchange or any large cryptocurrency exchange um, just has such a, a tremendous amount of revenue relative to the network cost on Bitcoin that it's still possible today to do gratuitously inefficient transaction patterns uh, to execute even like very simple protocols, like just like paying out your users when they ask you to withdraw money. So I guess we've seen, in some sense, we've seen like a, a transition away from things like Satoshi Dice, where it was just kind of comical how inefficient they were. But we're still at a point where, as you say, Bitcoin is very early, and you can do things which maybe in five or ten years we're going to look back on and say we're comically inefficient. Um, maybe we're going to see a trend towards those kind of things being priced out. Because I think as, as long as you can afford to be silly on the Bitcoin blockchain and just like pointlessly waste space, that's something that, that we should be concerned about because that, that ability to afford being silly is identical to the ability to afford you know, messing with the blockchain security, the ability to afford like trying to rewrite the chain or something like that. Like you really... You really would like uh, the um, people to be spending as much as they can on security and, and caring about the cost of securing their transactions. Okay, fair enough. I can just add a little about that. I, I, I think it's this also maybe 2012, 2013 was more of this, but even today, the idea that, okay, there's things you can do right now in Bitcoin, but we don't want to give people the idea that they can do those forever because then when you take them away, they get really mad and do things like make Bitcoin cash. And that, that's, you know, what happened years ago, where there's a lot of people who were working on Bitcoin and saying, no, I was promised, you know, instant free transactions, unlimited. 
And it's like, well, wait, who promised that? Because most of the developers working from the very beginning were saying, okay, scalability is going to be a big issue here and, and worrying about Satoshi Dice. But that doesn't always you know, get through to people. And so that was, I think, one of the big worries with Satoshi Dice as well as later things that like, okay, if people really get into this and like it and you, all your users are Satoshi Dice users, this isn't a sustainable path forward for Bitcoin because it, it's not really going to scale. Um, whereas maybe some other things might scale better. Vitalik, do you have a comment before um, I make a comment? Hmm. And it's interesting to uh, kind of think about these topics in light of like the approach that, that Ethereum took, where I think, and this is less of a technical difference and more of a, of a philosophical difference, where I think the community is m much more on the side of, you know, well, you know, we don't discriminate if you're a thing, pays the fees, then go for it, um, which is definitely, uh, I think, in some, uh, in some ways, a reaction to this uh, kind of approach of uh, kind of more trying to say, you know, the chain is intended for these things and, uh, and not for these other things. And like you can see the kind of uh, more of the Satoshi Dice like uh, worse is better philosophy, I guess you can call it like in Uniswap, for example, like to kind of give a topical example, right? Like if you talk to financial, like uh, traditional financial people, like they, yeah, I'd say, you know, like Uniswap is crazy. Like, like, you know, where's the order book? Like, why would a market maker even wants to just like create this uh, and like blanket, uh, you know, like X, Y equals K curve instead of like, actually being able to uh, kind of choose their, or, um, their limit orders more efficiently and uh, kind of drag them around the way they do in traditional exchanges and so forth. Uh, but you know, the reality is that if you look at the last three years, I uh, got a simple and dumb one, right? And as of a couple of days ago, simple and dumb uh, X, Y equals K as a Uniswap is, has now has a more volume than uh, Coinbase. Uh, so there, there's something to be said for uh, kind of the simple and dumb thing that uh, kind of feels ugly on paper, but uh, at the same time, you know, has these uh, kind of benefits in in, in Uniswap's case, I think kind of user experience was a big one. Like, I think uh, one of the predictions that I made uh, with a Uniswap, for example, was that like DEXs can have higher usability than, than uh, centralized exchanges, which sounds surprising, but it's possible because the, the decentralized exchanges are on-chain. And so to use them, you just like, go to this other website and you uh, just you know open up MetaMask and send, uh, send a transaction, right? You don't have to... Like, create an account and then deposit your coins and then do a confirm over here and do some other things and withdraw your coins. And uh, Satoshi Dice, like, I think, appealed to people because it had that similar feel. But on, on the other hand, um, you know, Uniswap does have these uh, kind of challenges around, well, right now, transaction fees. Now, one thing I will say is that, um, you know, one of the reasons I think Uniswap won is that it's... Uh, its gas usage is vastly lower than a lot of the um, other DEXs that came before it. Like Uniswap is, is like in the 50 to 100,000, but a lot of these kind of previous ones are you know, 200,000, 500,000, 700,000. Back then they didn't care much, but so it's, it's made all of the uh, kind of improvements that it can make, but even still, um, like, you know, it turns out that people really like being able to exchange between assets on chain. And so now it's like somewhere between a sixth and a third of Ethereum's uh, kind of activity. So, you know, you can see the cost and you can also see and the benefits of the philosophy. And from a security standpoint, it's, uh, you know, Ethereum transaction fees have been, uh, I guess, averaging over a longer time uh, uh, time frame, like 
uh, somewhere between, I guess, a quarter and as high as uh, the uh, as the mining reward for the past month or so. And on some days, if, um, have gotten higher. But you know, on the other hand, other hand, transaction fees being high means that some people have to pay those higher transaction fees. So it's a balance. Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpick out of these three answers. Um, so I'm going to try to pick them out a little bit so people don't get lost in the weeds. The first is sort of the use of the blockchain. So the point of Satoshi Dice was because they were that all these chains of unconfirmed transactions, that was seen as a waste of the Bitcoin blockchain because you know the, the goal there is to make it so you know 99% of the population can, can verify the blockchain in its entirety. And we have all these wasteful transactions and it's as odds bloat to the time it takes to verify the blockchain. The other part is fees themselves and why people would pay fees to do something. So as we're seeing on Ethereum today, uh, the fees are a bit ludicrous and crazy at the moment. But that's also because if they do trade X, I mean, if they do transaction A and they pay, I don't know, they pay X, but that transaction is going to make them Y, then they're willing to pay, you know, from X up to Y in order to, uh, to you know, make profit from it. Uh, basically, as long as that transaction is profitable, fee then they have a financial incentive to run that transaction. Can I uh, ask a question there, Paddy? Yeah, go ahead. So um, I agree with this idea that essentially the the, the blockchain is a free market and uh, as such, the prices indi- uh, are dictated by uh, supply and demand. It's more of a question for Vitalik, though. H- has this massive increase in prices priced out any other partic- particular uses of the blockchain that has you concerned Mm-hmm. Um, it has. Um, and like we can see that there are applications that uh, uh, like three years ago would have been on mainnet that right now we're living on test nets. Right. So especially the non-financial ones, like uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, the thing that was popular was uh, this uh, dark forest game. Right. That was uh, basically using zero knowledge proofs and uh, the blockchain in this uh, in a really clever way to basically implement this game that has to do around like jumping around different planets and uh, exploring space. And like, if you find someone, then, uh, you know, you fight them and all these things. And the transaction was running on uh, the Robson uh, test network, right? Uh, Which uh, now, obviously, if you're running on a test network, it's much less secure than all of these things. But no, they did have no choice, right? Because if they had run it on mainnet, it probably, you know, would have cost all the players like many, many thousands of dollars. And and it would just like not have happened. Uh, So, Non-financial use cases are definitely having a really hard time now. Um, and, and it is definitely a concern uh, that, I, well, some people might say a concern. Some people might say, well, blockchains are primarily financial tools all along, and this is what's supposed to happen. That uh, kind of it's the financial use cases that uh, if, you, if you have limited space, end up uh, outbidding the less financial ones. See, what that says to me is it kind of reinforces what I like about Bitcoin, it, it it essentially tries to do one thing very, very well and very securely, which is the movement of value around the world. And it's it's like a tank for that. Um, and it also kind of reinforces, I think, why Satoshi Dice wasn't such a great idea for the Bitcoin blockchain. And in some ways, it's kind of highlighting them same issues now for Ethereum. So in some ways, I wonder if that changes the future. I wonder if other people would move to other blockchains, certain ideas, or that will change, change maybe narrow what people think Ethereum will be used for. Because if you've got projects which can't get off Testnet because 
or or are these things that will be solved with these two? Yeah, and the the uh, various Ethereum scaling technologies, I guess, combining ETH two and rollups are definitely the thing that the ecosystem is going full speed ahead on right now. Uh, so, uh, I I know that there's a lot of projects that are increasingly looking at the rollups uh, because uh, the rollups are much shorter term than. Uh, you know, things like sharding, right? That'll probably take maybe two, potentially one to two years uh, to get out there. Uh, whereas rollups, you know, they're, well, the optimistic ones are coming in a few months. Uh, the ZK rollups uh, that are, you know, they use fancier technology, but they're actually simpler because they only support a couple of applications instead of general purpose uh, smart contracts. Like some of them are here already. And one of the things that I heard recently is that Loopring, this is this decentralized exchange that's running on top of a ZK rollup, they are um, integrating a Uniswap-like uh, like automated market maker into their platform, I think, starting from uh, the next version. Uh, so I, I definitely think that people should not be rushing to conclusions until the uh, scaling technologies are ready. Um, and... You know, when they are, like, we will see. Like, I can see one of a couple of outcomes. Like, one outcome is that transaction fees are kind of durably get cheaper again. The other outcome, which is both less and more optimistic, would be one that says, like, it just attract the possibility of scaling attracts a much larger amount of usage. And because you have, uh, you know, a thousand times more space, but a thousand times more users, we're kind of back to square one. And it's a a financial platform, but it's a financial platform for you know many more people than there are now. So, like it's and you know, and it turns out that for like technical or security reasons or whatever, we will not be able to scale it even more beyond some point. Uh, so, like I see uh, the, like, those two futures, and it's also like, possible that we'll be able to scale to many more users and be yeah, more, be cheaper for those users. But we'll see. So, so if that happens, then you'll be announcing E three. Um. So E three. I mean, <laughs> come on, that was a joke. You, you, you actually have an answer. I, I, I definitely have uh, kind of thoughts on E three. You know, this is this is one of those things that kind of different people in Ethereum have different opinions on. Like Justin Drake is like, kind of excited about E three. I'm much more in the uh, kind of E two is the end of history camp. Like basically, I like, and th- this is a uh, kind of technical rabbit hole that's probably too uh, rabbit holey for a Bitcoin audience, but like, I think there are limits and uh, kind of complicated trade-offs on how far you can scale a sharding system. Like basically the higher the, 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 the higher the number of shards that you push, the higher the minimum number of users the system needs to have in order to be safe. And so as you scale it up more, it becomes more brittle. Um, and so like if ETH2 with and rollups on top of ETH2 can't fix it, then like basically, you know, nothing can because like you would just unacceptably punish uh, punish security to try to kind of push the system to its limits. But you know, much more rabbit holey topic. So maybe talk about it some other time. Yeah, I think I think you should get ETH2 first out first before we get onto ETH3. <laughs> All right, Paddy. Sorry, Paddy. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh no, it's fine. So I think what we can do is we can focus on how Bitcoin and Ethereum work today for the next little bit because they would bring up. So basically, we've got to the point where we're going to talk about why they're Frankenstein systems, and then we're going to talk about scalability. So we'll touch upon rollups, Lightning, and hopefully uh, current ways that you know we can scale using the CM hardware. So we've sort of basically got to the Frankenstein topic just before we got into the tangent about rollup. So. Why do I call these Frankenstein systems? Because Satoshi Nakamoto was not a very good programmer. 
Uh, there's plenty of bugs inside the early Bitcoin Core software. Some that I've taken, I've made a little list here. So back in 2010, if you there was a bug in Oprah return that would allow anyone to steal anyone's Bitcoins. Multisig has a bug. At the start of a multisig script, there's a zero. If you forget your zero, then you're going to run into problems. Um, several opcodes were considered dangerous and they were just disabled altogether. Uh, when you verify a Bitcoin block, you actually create this Merkle tree with like you hash every transaction, you build a little tree, and the root of the tree is the commitment to all transactions. That's not implemented correctly in Bitcoin either. There's a bug on the and how the last bit of the tree, you know, duplicates the transaction. So there's so many little like quirks in Bitcoin that make that really horrible. Um, Ethereum equally has uh, another list of bugs that I'll hopefully get into soon. But one of the things I wanted to highlight was actually we're going on to the you know waste of Bitcoin block space topic. So Bitcoin has its model. Oh, can we just go back a step there, uh, Paddy? Just so, just as you raise a number of things like that that other people might not be aware of or heard of before, Andrew, can can you just respond to that? Like, are these things that are known and yeah, frivolous? We shouldn't care about them. Yeah, as a Bitcoin user today, you don't need to worry about any of these things. These bugs have all been either fixed or yeah. uh, or somehow shimmed around. So these aren't active problems with Bitcoin. There are historical things that, as Patty says, are, are kind of surprising that you would see a bug like that. Um, in yeah, these are like 2010 bugs. Right, yeah. We were talking, most of these have been fixed for, well, a couple of them have been fixed for literally 10 years. Um, I think most of them have been fixed for more than five. So this is, this is all um, um, historical stuff that does not affect Bitcoin today. And they are all well known within the like uh, Bitcoin OG developer community. Okay. Yeah, so these are well-known bugs. Um, so one thing I wanted to bring up first was the waste of block space. And so if we consider Bitcoin versus Ethereum, this is one topic I find very interesting that I used to give to students at university that you know, make them puzzle them a bit. So in the Bitcoin world, every time I get a new Bitcoin, so if you send me a Bitcoin, you know, there's the UTXO model and the idea that every time you send me a coin, there's a new entry in the ledger that my address has this coin. So every time I receive new coins, there's this new entry in the ledger. And it's a bit like a wallet. You know, I could end up with like 10 different sets of coins. And when I want to go to spend my coins, I create a transaction. I pick, you know, maybe two, three different of these uh, outputs, these coins. And then I send them in a transaction. And then I, you know, I basically compress them into one output and I send them out. So, but the main point there is every time I send you a coin, there's a new entry in the ledger. And when you create a transaction, you're going to have to pick several of these entries. Uh, in the Ethereum world, is the account-based model. So every time you send me a coin, it just increments my balance. You know, as, as you would expect an account-based model to work. When I spend my coins, you just check if I have enough coins in my balance, then I spend it. Now, back in, I think this is 2017, maybe 2018, uh, Coinbase got a lot of flack, uh, a lot of uh, bad press, because they had 1.5 million UTXOs that accounted for, let's say, 250 Bitcoin. It was around that region. But because they had so many ent- ledger entries, these outputs, it was only con- it was not economically viable to spend the Bitcoin because all every output was like, I don't know, like $5, $3 or something, but they add up to 200 Bitcoin. Now, to get around this, what Coinbase have to do is they have to wait until the fees on the network go really low. Then they create transactions that basically batch all of these entries in the one. And all they're doing is managing their coins and they have to create Bitcoin transactions and send that to the network. Now, my question would be, 
is it is it Coinbase's problem that like should this be Coinbase's problem? Should they have the monies or UTXO? Do they need to do this batching? Is this not just a waste of the Bitcoin blockchain because of a you know a problem in the protocol? So and in the account based model, this doesn't exist because you just you know keep tapping up the same account. So I just want to maybe I seen Vitalik unmute himself, so I'll let Vitalik go first. Um, see what he thinks. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I'm sure that uh, I can imagine Andrew would even be able to kind of describe the, the justifications for the UTXO uh, kind of approach even better than I can. And but you know, as uh, uh, Patty mentioned, there's definitely you know, frustrations with it. Like, I even remember experiencing uh, this myself uh, back in uh, 2014 when uh, we were doing the uh, Ethereum uh, kind of Ether sale, right? And we had this one address that gathered together. Um, it was like. 9,003 inputs or something like this. And these were all in a multi-sig cold wallet. Uh, and so what we had to do was uh, basically just come up with, generate scripts and come up with and send this like, huge number of uh, transactions on chain that uh, kind of gathered up all of those uh, uh, transactions that kind of combined them together into a, um, into a hot wallet. And, and then the software we were using had uh, kind of limits on how much uh, you could uh, kind of bash together at any time. And uh, we started off by kind of grabbing these uh, uh, kind of the big um, uh, kind of outputs that we received. And then when we got some small ones, there was a whole bunch of dust. And eventually we just, uh, when there was not too much money left, I kind of took all four private keys on all four different uh, kind of machines, exported them, put them all onto my laptop, and then just like wrote a script to generate the, uh, the rest. So there's definitely a lot of, like, it was a time-consuming and uh, kind of not user, uh, user-friendly process. And, 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 uh, this is not the only time. Like, there was also a time in uh, 2013. This was when I was writing uh, a Bitcoin, uh, like basically Bitcoin wallet software, and uh, started to kind of run into some similar issues. And like, one of the issues was, I think that if you want to, let's say, you want to send a transaction that has a coin, then you have to uh, figure out. Uh, what the fee is going to be, but then that fee adds a bit to how much you have to pay. And then what if the amount that you have to pay had requires a kind of adding an extra output and then that extra output increases the size of the transaction, which increases the fee and then a bit of a recursive loop. Uh, so there were these kinds of things. And I think you can say that they uh, kind of contributed to motivating um, Ethereum's uh, kind of account-based approach. And now, of course, at the time, I uh, I kind of didn't really understand well what the kind of technical benefits of the yeah, UTXL-based approach are. And now, you know, we have a, kind of a much better handle on those arguments. And I mean, either here or at some point, we can talk about some of the things that we're doing to try to uh, kind of move toward getting the, uh, getting the benefits of both approaches at the same time. But I mean, it's definitely complicated and a lot of trade-offs. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Taj. Oh, sorry. Do you want to go ahead, Andrew? So I, I can counter with my own user experience story about the account model, um, just to emphasize. So Vitalik is correct yet, um, as a wallet developer. So users don't need to see this, but a wallet developer needs to think about this. There are um, difficult uh, computational problems related to doing this optimally. And it, it gets complicated and it's difficult to, to manage. And I can comment a bit later on some benefits of on sort of the technical design decision, but certainly from a user point of view, it can be frustrating to manage a bunch of UTXOs, especially when you find that some of them are very small and their value um, is no longer sufficient to, to pay for their own spending. But the flip side of this, though, 
is that the UTXO model lets you, as a user, when you're receiving funds, to generate a unique invoice number, or an address, I guess is what we call it for Satoshi reasons, um, a unique address for every single payment. And so when you receive coins, you have an easy way to identify when you received money related to a specific payment request, to a, a specific invoice or a, a shipment or whatever, your user or what have you. In the account model, or in the way that Ethereum has implemented it, you as a business, if you try to have only one account that is receiving coins from all these different users, it becomes difficult to identify which specific payments come from which users. You can look at the transaction and look at the spending account and try to identify users that way. But that makes it hard for users to use multiple wallets. It makes it hard for users to spend coins from different smart contracts. It, in general, uh, restricts the way that users are able to use the system. So, and then if you instead try to receive coins, if you say try to attach an identifier using a smart contract or, or something like that, then you find yourself having to write, having to write solidity or having to, to write some sort of contract just to receive coins which I've talked to a few wallet developers who, who get very antsy about that. They get very scared and they, they wish that they could do something simple. Um, another approach you might try is to say, well, I am going to have a unique account for every single user. I'm going to receive coins to that account. And then I'm going to have my own co code, which forwards money from the temporary account to my real account. And then I'm going to have all my money in the same account. And the reason that you need to do this sort of um, consolidation step is that when you're spending coins in an account model, you can't spend from multiple accounts at once. If you were doing that, then, then you'd basically be in the UTXO model, right? So because you're, you're always spending from a single account, you need all your funds to come into a single account. And then that makes it more difficult to uh, distinguish between different payments. They might be coming in in different orders from different paths across the network and so forth. Um, and as, you, as a wallet developer, I'm kind of curious if, if there's a standard solution to this from the Ethereum world, and maybe I just um, don't understand it. But I can comment a little bit as well, actually. I had oh, a sure. yeah. problem. So, um, so the point there is that how do you identify the person sending you money? That's to be the basic problem here. And what you do in Bitcoin is that you give the person paying you money a new Bitcoin address. And if you get money to that address, you can say, well, Bob paid me money. And in the Ethereum world, people always tend to reuse the same address. But now if I get 10 payments to the same address, I'm like, well, did Bob pay me? I don't know. And I don't think there's a payment protocol in Ethereum because someone paid me about this issue. Because what you could do is have a payment protocol where maybe the sender pings the receiver to say, here's the transaction I paid you. And this is, you know, I can prove that I own this account. But that doesn't really seem to exist. Um, and the transaction does have a memo field. It would be really nice if it had a memo field because then you could just put information in the memo. Alongside the well, it does, right? Like Ethereum transactions do have the TX data field. Do that? Oh, they have a data field, I guess. But um, I guess you could just put random data in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can put as much data as you want, as long as you're willing to pay the 16 gas per byte for it, which for a memo is pretty tiny. Um, yeah, and I think in if the Ethereum world, like there, there's a couple of different solutions for this. Like the one that I think a lot of people use is just because it uh, kind of maps the most closely onto their existing practices in other blockchains. It's just like Andrew's solution of like give a different address to each user and then run your own code to consolidate. Like that's what I think exchanges end up like just doing. And, and I mean, it might be kind of on net the most convenient for them because it lets them have the same workflow across all the different chains. The second approach would be to like not have a contract on chain, but to uh, kind of 
ask senders to include transaction data, and then you would have code that goes into the transactions and checks what their data is. And the third would be, and it's, a, I guess, philosophically the most correct approach, but and I definitely I agree that the Ethereum ecosystem hasn't done enough to kind of make it easy to do this, is to write a contract. And that contract can have a function, and that function would take an argument. And the function could even do something like respond back by kind of giving you some ERC721 or some other token that basically kind of specifies that, you know, you paid for the thing. And so it would be a payment and, and the ticketing kind of system at the same time, potentially. So in, it depends on your use case. I think one thing that could come out of this is if anyone's listening, they could write a, a EIP standard for putting the data inside the data field. That would be nice. Um, yeah, I mean, this is uh, definitely one of those things that comes out of uh, like Ethereum having less of a, a kind of payment-centric culture than a lot of the payment-focused blockchains that, you know, it's, there's like, relatively less people that use it for plain old consumer to merchant payments. I mean, I can have a go at building that if you want. <laughs> yeah. Am I still... Yeah, do I, you want to make a comment, Todd? working? Yes, We're still I, hopefully, I don't know, I'll turn off the camera. I don't know if I'm lagging or something. Um, I, I would just say with the Coinbase thing specifically, what was interesting, I, don't, I think, I'm pretty sure Coinbase does not do this anymore, but I know that oh, years ago, they sort of were acting like Bitcoin was an account model, right? Where each person had this sort of withdrawal address, where whatever address you gave Coinbase that you wanted to withdraw to, they would first send it to sort of, quote unquote, your address, which Bitcoin controlled the private keys for, and then from there, send it out to you. So they, that, that was a big aspect of, of they had sort of a weird custom software that was trying to treat uh, the Bitcoin UTXO model more like an account model. And I, I definitely agree that the, the account model is much more intuitive, but I really like the UTXO model having worked more with it because, yeah, it, it's, it's much more sort of purpose built. It's, there's definitely things you can't do with it, but um, for, for just what I think Bitcoin tries to do, it, it's really nice uh, efficiency gain. I have one one more quick thing I'd like to throw in, um, which is that Vitalik mentioned the uh, the difficulty, or the annoyance or cost of having to consolidate coins in the UTXO model, where if you receive a bunch of small payments and then the sort of the ambient network fee level goes up uh, a certain amount, then you'll find the payments you received are no longer usable to you because they're in UTXOs whose value is less than the network fee required to spend them. Um, and he mentioned how, how to avoid this. Basically, you combine multiple small UTXOs into one at times when network fees are lower. And I think as a user hearing that, that's maybe like a scary thing, right? This is something that you've never even heard of, and then suddenly your, your funds become inaccessible. Um, and there's, there's nothing you can do about it. And I should maybe mention that that's not really the case from a, a user perspective. Right now in Bitcoin, the um, minimum fee required to get into a block uh, goes to, to zero or whatever the denial of service uh, lower limit is every Sunday afternoon. Um, for, for reasons of inefficiency, uh, network fees tend to go up by quite a bit during bankers' hours during the week. Uh, they go down every evening, and every evening in New York, it's all, all New York-centric for who knows what reason. Um, and then they go down quite a bit on Saturday and even more on Sunday. And so for network security reasons, I, I hope that that situation changes because it is very bad that nobody's paying to secure the network on Sundays um, because obviously attackers uh, you know, don't have to take weekends. But, um, but what that means is right now as a developer, you can have code that just always does consolidation on Sunday afternoons. And, and in the future, when hopefully that situation goes away, 
the whole ecosystem will be much more mature to hopefully to a point where these kind of conversations will be like esoteric technical things that nobody has thought about in years because there's like an off the shelf solution to all of them. I just wanted to throw that in there. Cool. Um, I can sort of move on the topic a bit so we don't, you know, dive in, uh, keep talking about, I don't know, uh, gas limits or not gas limits, sorry, pricing. Um, one thing I did want to bring up is basically the Bitcoin scripting language itself and what it's capable of. I think that's quite interesting. Um, I was going to make a joke about how like, uh, transactions are signed in Bitcoin, but I won't make that one now. Um, I'll just move on to save time. Uh, so basically... Bitcoin script sort of like this dark art that no one really understands. You have to be a special wizard to write Bitcoin script. I remember trying to do it once or twice myself, and I really hated the experience. And I mean, potentially thousands of Bitcoins would be lost in the early days, pre-2014, just because of really bad scripts that people wrote. Most of these Bitcoin scripts and most transactions seem to rely on like three basic primitives, you know. This coin can be spent if one or more parties have signed the transaction, you know, a single SIG or a multi-SIG. This coin can be spent after time T. And coins can only be spent if a secret is revealed before time T. They seem to be the most primitive, the basic primitives that you get in a Bitcoin script. And so this is really a question for Taj. So obviously, Taj, you were involved in designing the lightning, the lightning channels, the lightning network back in, I guess, 2014, 2015 now. And these were the basic three ingredients you had to build, you know, the, the lightning protocol. Uh, how did you find that? Did, I mean, I normally find designing stuff in Bitcoin, like, you know, punching it in the submission to get it to do what I want. I wonder what your experience was like doing that. Yeah, uh, it was difficult. It, it wasn't even the script, like, at least as, tw- as of 2014, like, you couldn't really do the lightning uh, script because we didn't have uh, op check lock time verify or... Op, uh, check sequence verify. So the time locks were only transaction based initially. And it was sort of like how, you know, th- there were previous constructions that were much more limited because your, your t- uh, channels had like a fixed duration uh, and you could, o- or you could only update a certain number of times. So part of it was looking at, okay, given this like system, how can we put in like a very minimal change to allow um, the network, cha- the lightning network channels? The, the script itself, once you have that, I don't think it was that bad. Like, compared to everything else working on Lightning, we pro- you know, you probably spend a day or two, you know, tweaking the script and the opcodes. But compared to everything else, that, that was not really the issue at all. Um, so, so it wasn't like, yeah, the, the, writing the script is hard, but so many other things are much more involved and, like, actually getting the opcodes and, and being able to use them. Yeah, this sort of leads me to a question I also want to ask Andrew. So, um Obviously, the Bitcoin script is like a very tiny, tiny part of the overall protocol. And um, but obviously, the script, like whatever you can encode on the blockchain, will influence the wider protocol what you build on top. So, what do you yeah. think is the, the 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 experience? Maybe maybe Andrew wants to answer this first because I know he has some opinions on this based on what he's been building recently. Uh, yeah. Building protocols on top of Bitcoin scripts, you've got the script and it works, but now you need to do you know the multi-party work on top of it. Um, how have you guys found that? Yeah, it's, it's funny that Taj says, oh, well, you know, the script is such a small part of the protocol. Everything is much harder. So sure, if you're somebody building the Lightning Network, then yeah, maybe script is a small part of your complexity. But I would hope that, that ordinary users just trying to manage their coins wouldn't be, be dreaming in, in terms of the Lightning Network scale complexity. And in that case, I think for, for ordinary, uh, well, ordinary wallet developers, um, 
the script is actually very difficult to use. And it's, it's funny to hear, hear you characterize what script can do in terms of signatures and time locks and hash preimages, because that meme or that, that way of thinking about script is actually fairly recent. That comes out of a project I was doing with uh, Peter Wola and Sanjit Kandelkar mm -hmm. uh, starting in 2018 called Miniscript, which was a way to find a subset of script that was useful, could do a bunch of different things, but that also had a comprehensible user model. Because my experience using directly trying to use script was pretty similar to Patty's. Um, I've probably dug into the Bitcoin script interpreter better, more than uh, um, well, more than, than most people in the world. Um, and even having studied it for several years, there's really a lot of weird sharp edges. It seems to me like it didn't have a clear purpose when it was designed. It wasn't like, oh, we should think in terms of signatures and hash preimages and so forth. It's sort of a collection of different operators that seem to be stolen from fourth. Uh, which is some old school, like 1960s uh, programming language that is basically like assembly, but like crumpled up in a dumb way. Um, yeah, you can quote me on that. Um, it has a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of weird opcodes that, uh, that were copied from an unrelated programming language called Forth. Um, it had a bunch of arithmetic things in it that, uh, as, as I think Patty mentioned, were eventually disabled because their implementation had security issues. Um, they would like, a lot of them would run into undefined behavior in C, or they would allocate unboundedly um, much memory under certain circumstances, or, or various awful things they would all do. Um, the, the language paradigm is basically similar to EVM. It's a bunch of opcodes all in a row, right? You do this, you do that, you do this, you do that, and you're operating on bits and bytes. You're not thinking in terms of signatures, you're not thinking in terms of time, and, and uh, as Taj mentioned, in the original, incarnation until very late in the game, until 2014, 2015, we didn't even have opcodes that could work with times. Um, you're just thinking in terms of bits and bytes, which is really not how, as a user, is really not how you're thinking about things. And so you find, as a, as a person trying to use script, you run into this double whammy of, first of all, script itself is full of dark corners and, and weird sharp edges. And secondly, you have to translate your mental model of what you're trying to implement Right? Maybe you want like a, a two or three multi-signature with like a time-locked emergency clause or something like this. You have to translate that mental model into script itself. And the way Ethereum approaches that second issue of translating the mental model is in Ethereum you have these languages, you have Solidity and you have a, a Serpent. And maybe there are others now, but I think Solidity is sort of what everybody uses. And this is a language that, that looks similar to... to uh, other more, more modern programming languages and their compilers that will translate that into EVM, which is uh, similar to Bitcoin script, but, but had maybe clearer use cases in mind. So yes, script is very rough. So the, the origin of Miniscript, which I mentioned, and I'll try to be brief so we, we can move on, was trying to come up with something that would let users use Bitcoin script and in some way users can go ahead and use Solidity. And we had two limiting, two limiting factors in designing this. One was that we were working with Bitcoin scripts that simply can't do a lot of the stuff that EVM can do. So that, that was both tied our hands and also made our job a little bit easier. And the second thing is we were a bit scared of all of, the, all of the issues in Solidity, both related to users working with a fully general programming language where maybe they would run into surprising interactions, especially related to like re-entrancy and, and figuring out costs for various things. 
And also there have been issues in solidity related to the compiler itself doing surprising things or, or buggy things. And what we wanted was a way that users were almost basically just using Bitcoin script itself. So the, the, way that, um, the way that you compare what's on the blockchain to what the, the user-readable version is, we wanted that to be like as, as thin a layer as we possibly could. So we came up with a scheme called Miniscript, where Miniscript is basically you, you build this, this tree, this, this graph, uh, however you want to call it, of signature checks, of time locks, of hash checks, you put these into a tree where all your nodes are like ands and ors and like five of seven of these and, and two or three of these and so forth. And then we have a way to serialize that tree into directly into Bitcoin script opcodes. And you can also deserialize it and back. So the way that we think about script today is usually in, in these terms. Because when you're using Miniscript, you have a nice pretty picture. You've got this tree you can draw of your script and all your conditions. Um, and if you're using script, well, hopefully you can deserialize your script into Miniscript. Because otherwise, you know, you're in, you're in the dark forest of, of mysterious script behavior. And that situation kind of hasn't improved since ever. Um, it is, the Bitcoin script itself is still quite difficult to work with directly and quite difficult to reason about directly. Opcode separator. That's all I have to do. Oh. <laughs> yeah, dark corners. There are dark corners everywhere. It's a, I think this is also like a good summary of that. So with Miniscript is the idea that instead of actually writing Bitcoin opcodes and dealing with the script itself, the idea is more that you outline the type of constraints that you care about. So maybe you want a multi-sig here where you want Alice involved to sign it. Or maybe there's another condition where you say Alice can then spend this coin after time T. And as a programmer, you just write these constraints and you don't really deal with the opcodes. And then everything just gets nicely packed up into a tree. Then you can just reveal one of the conditions and then span the coins based on that condition. Is that a good way to summarize it? I think so, yeah. Um, and what's cool is yeah, I'm pretty sure you can do the same thing. I think you could take Miniscript um, and then serialize it into EVM as well. You have to come up with a serialization, but I don't think that would be difficult to do. I think you get you know, an intern to spend a couple afternoons on that. Um, so this model is not just limited to Bitcoin script, but we were sort of, uh, we wound up coming coming into it, both based on the limits of Bitcoin script and also the, the Bitcoin ethos of, uh, of really trying to minimize the, the number of layers between what gets executed on the blockchain and what's in the user's head. Yeah, Vitalik, did you want to comment on this? I've seen you unmute yourself a few times. Um, yeah, and there's definitely a, kind of a lot of things that got covered there. And I think one of the, kind of, in general, right, like making a scripting language is hard. And, and, and so I definitely see why kind of a lot of the uh, opcodes got uh, disabled very early on, right? Like one of the classes of bugs that's, uh, uh, it, it takes quite a bit of thinking to weed out in a scripting language is what I call a quadratic execution bugs. So this is basically where like if you have n worth of space in your script or in your execution time, you can create n things, and each of those n things uh, kind of take like n amount of work to do, and so you know n multiply by n, and so if the thing gets twice as big, it takes four times longer to execute. Maybe a catcher Andrew could correct me on this, but I I remember Bitcoin having and perhaps still having a, a quadratic execution issue, where basically you generate a big transaction that has a 
a whole bunch of uh, different uh, signatures. And e for each signature, you have to compute a separate hash by basically taking every input except for that input. And so you have these n hashes of n size. And so it's technically n squared. But like because Bitcoin has smaller block sizes, it only takes like something like 30 seconds to verify. Remember that? Uh, you just took my joke, Vitalik. That was the one I skipped yeah. over. Um, oh, no, but like, Ethereum basically, like historically, you know, it's had lots of like similar issues. And there was this time in 2016 when, uh, and we had this um, attacker who, I don't know, probably on net was uh, quite help helpful to the ecosystem. Like just systematically like went through every one of the issues in the protocol and just attacked them on mainnet and ended up like shutting, almost shutting mainnet down. I mean, not quite shutting mainnet down. Like I think uh, the Augur um, ICO happened during that time period, but like making it really hard to use for about 35 days. And we eventually had to uh, kind of hard fork to uh, get around it. Uh, so it was, uh, it was tough. And, and there, there's definitely a lot of these uh, kind of security nuances and you have to like really explicitly think about like gas costs and, and you know, Bitcoin uh, like has its equivalent of gas costs because I think like you have not like there's the block size and witness size limits. Um, you have this, like, I think SIG ops limitations was it like some other things. Uh, so it's um, like, there's tough things that um, that you have to think about, though the trade-off is that like if you create a yeah, scripting language that's uh, richer than the, like, there is some higher layer simplicity that you can get, right? So like one of the, I think, benefits that if that uh, you get on the, the Ethereum side is that uh, the ability, well, what, what we call rich statefulness, uh, kind of this ability to have these objects where objects have persistent addresses and those objects can be modified and keep the same address. Like that's uh, something that I've definitely heard uh, even, you know, state channel developers appreciating and something where if you want to do something more complex, like one of these wallets where, you know, like you can start a transaction, that transaction has a 24 hour waiting period within that 24 hour waiting period, you can cancel it and all of that. Like there's, there's ways to do it. If you add other opcodes in this, uh, model where like all like basically every object that you have is a is a one-time use object but it's still uh like the, there's benefits where kind of the mental model that you have of like your wallet and your wallet just stores stores things that kind of map directly to a smart contract so yeah, yeah you, you should have picked up my next point as well Fatalik. so let me just summarize all of this um <laughs> just before we jump into anything so Bitcoin had this really weird signature bug, which was going to be one of my earlier jokes, where based on the number of coins you're spending, you'd have to do quadratic operations to verify that transaction. Now, in 2016, Bitcoin actually had a spam attack where someone was basically creating transactions that were fanning out and creating thousands of coins that were all dust. And eventually the miners, actually the Bitcoin miners went and fixed this. They reduced the state bloat by creating mega blocks to spend those coins. But those mega blocks took like 10 minutes or more to verify. I don't actually remember the exact amount of time. Just because that one megabyte transaction was huge. And because of this quadratic bug, the blocks just took forever to verify. And the whole, one of the big reasons for SigWit was not really for the block size increase. It was to fix that bug and the fixed transaction vulnerability. So now in SigWit, we no longer have that weird quadratic bug anymore, which is really nice. Oh. Well, no, but like, you you have a way to make big transactions without the bug, but the old type of transaction can still be made, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, they're still there. Of course, yeah. the, the bug still exists. It's not gone. It's um, just yeah. polished over. Um, yeah, but, okay, this gets on to my next point, though, is to do with Bitcoin vaults. But before I get the Bitcoin vaults, was um, 
there's this ongoing joke in Bitcoin that you can do everything with multi-sig. You know, multi-sig is the ultimate smart contract. You don't need smart contracts at all. Uh, how true is that? Uh, Taz, Andrew, do one of you guys want to pick that up? Uh, I, I guess, I don't know to, to what extent people are aware, but like a discrete log contract is a kind of, and some of the stuff Andrew's worked on with script scripts, he could talk about what, it's it's not exactly just multi-sig, but you can do quite a lot with just, uh, you know, the signatures and the time locks. Um, so you can, you know, in discrete log contracts, you can have certain types of you know, futures contracts or forward contracts with like an Oracle that this, you know, gives you a price feed. And then you, you know, based on the Oracle's price feed, uh, someone wins money, someone loses money in sort of a lightning channel like structure. Um so, so there's quite a bit you can do with Bitcoin scripting. Um, obviously, it's, it's much more challenging than Ethereum scripting, which is sort of built for do whatever you want. Um, but it's, it's kind of cool to be able to do these things and potentially much less traceable. Like if everything looks like a signature and you can, if there's something you can get to sort of fit into a signature, it's really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew, did you want to comment on it? Yeah, sure. Um... Yeah, going with the, the model we have of script, where, where it's signatures and hash locks and time locks. Um, so Taj mentioned some things that don't actually fit into those models that you, that you can do with discrete log contracts, where the result is just a single signature. I have a, a toy called, not a toy, uh, hopefully a, a real system, <laughs> called, uh, called Scriptless Scripts, which lets you do um, lets you hash uh, pre-images using only signatures. And then having multi, multiple signatures and stuff that we've known for, for quite a while at least in theory, how to do multi-signatures and threshold signatures and stuff. Uh, although certainly in practice, uh, things get quite difficult when you try to actually implement that in an adversarial setting. Uh, the one big piece that's sort of missing is that there's not any clean, there's not any way I would say is reasonable to do something resembling time locks using only signatures. So you find that when you're trying to do all sorts of cool things with just signatures, you find that actually you usually need a time-locked backout condition, right? You want so that if, if too many of your parties just drop out and disappear, or they try to grieve the protocol or whatever, that after a certain amount of time, everyone else can, can call their coins back. You need that in pretty much any protocol. And right now, the, the way that we know how to use signatures is, is basically you can't do it with just signatures. So you need some sort of scripting ability. So in, in SegWit V1, or Taproot, Part of our design goal was that in the cooperative case, in the happy case for any protocol you design, you can get away with using just signatures. So we made sure that the happy case for taproot spend looks like just a public key and some signatures. Okay, and then taproot lets you commit to a script if you need a script. And the reason you would need a script in practice is typically to have some sort of time-locked backout clause. So if things go wrong, then you say, oh, haha, that public key that I told you, that was secretly a commitment to some other script. And then here's a script, and here we're going to execute it. The time locks up, here are some more signatures, blah, 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 whatever. Um, but I've, I've, going back to, to very early in this call, when Vitalik said, like, worse is better. I think this script to script stuff is maybe like a, a real example of where worse is better might wind up killing us. And I, I hate to say that, but it's very difficult to work with scriptless scripts. Um, I know there are a few people out there, um, including Taj, I think, but also uh, Pedro Marino Sanchez, um, who you should get on the show, Peter. That would be cool if you could get Pedro on here. Okay. Um, who are working on trying to build like a, a coherent protocol framework using scriptless scripts. But the current situation is basically... Like 
when I was talking about how awful Bitcoin script is to use, well, imagine if every single script you wrote, you actually had to like write a publishable academic cryptography paper and like with mathematical proof and get that through peer review. Like that, that's the level of difficulty. And, uh, and like not even like simple papers, like you can't even like ask a grad student to do it in a, in a couple of weeks. Like half of these are, are really complicated, like multi-party protocols with like really complicated security models that are difficult to even describe. So, um, so yeah, you can do anything you want with just signatures. Um, but the, the complexity blow up is unfortunately really big. And that trade-off may be reasonable for something like the Lightning Network where like the, the script component is a small piece of the whole puzzle and the script component never changes. They usually have like one script that you use for every single channel. I mean, I, I, can, I can try to summarize what you're basically saying as well. So, um, so it's scriptless scripts. And the point of a scriptless script is that so far it does the condition coins can only be spent if a secret is revealed. Um, you know, the secret being the discrete log in this case. And the idea there is that we want this condition to do indistinguishable from a normal signature. So you see a signature in the blockchain and you had no idea there was a script even involved. And Taproot's also basically trying to achieve the same thing. The idea in Taproot is that you can hide most of the scripts on the blockchain and you only reveal the script that you're going to spend later on. Is that a good way to summarize it? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and, and it ties in, I guess, to... to but what I said like very early on the call about trying to just minimize what you put on the chain, right? Mm-hmm. The, the end result is there's a key and there's a signature and that's all that hits the chain and the, the whole protocol, all the scripts and stuff kind of are hidden behind the scenes amidst this, this more complicated protocol that's only amongst the actual counterparties and not amongst the blockchain validators. Yeah. I would also say that like it's, it's sort of hard mode to develop scripts and, and signatures this way. But if you get it to work, it's it's usable in other systems that have much more powerful scripting. So like you could do these kind of things in Ethereum because Ethereum certainly supports you know checking signatures, um, and and you also maybe get some of the benefits of it not being obvious what people are doing. So it's it's really important work either way. Although yeah, for many things it's it gets too complicated to to make. You know you're not going to be able to have ERC twenty tokens uh, with scriptless scripts, right? Yeah. Okay, I, I can move on. To, I can start moving on to a bit of Ethereum now, just so we you know, speed up a little bit. So one thing I wanted to highlight in the Bitcoin world is one really cool feature that would be nice is a Bitcoin vault. The idea being there is that when I receive a coin on Bitcoin, um, it gets locked into my vault automatically. And then if someone tries to spend or steal my Bitcoin, there's this pending window of 24 hours where I could see someone trying to steal my Bitcoin and I could reverse the transaction. That's the basic idea of a Bitcoin vault. But so far today, to achieve that in Bitcoin is very difficult um, because they don't support this technique called covenants. So the way to achieve it in Bitcoin today is you send it to my address. My signing key is online. I have to pre-sign a transaction, keep that in local storage, and then delete my signing key. And that's not really ideal for a secure setup if you want Bitcoin vaults because all your signing keys are online for a limited period of time. Uh, now, in the Ethereum world, this is way easier to implement. You could use, I could probably write a smart contract within the next hour or two that would hopefully not be broken and would be able to do that. But that hopefully will not be broken is the important bit because um, so it means the EVM is very expressive and has a lot of very quirky bugs. Uh, good examples are the DAO, you know, that led to that hard fork that I think was like, was it, Vitalik, was it 20% of coins that were locked up in the DAO? 
Um, it was 12%. I okay, think. 12%. Yeah. So, you know, that was written by the Ethereum developers back in 2016. And there was an unforeseen bug that no one except Andre Miller was able to predict. Um, he has a I told you so slide on one of his slides about this. Um, and then later on, we had these wallet contracts by the parity wallet, and that was hacked twice. The first time, I actually forget the dummies in the hack, but that was a smart contract bug. The second bug for the parity wallet was the wallet architecture, and it was just wasn't deployed correctly. So this guy called DevOps199 came along. He set himself as the owner. He did self-destruct, and he destroyed everyone's Bitcoin or Ethereum and locked it up. So getting these smart contracts right is actually a tricky job in its own right because it's so expressive. And one thing I wanted to bring up were actually, I guess, security audits because they're very topical at the moment. I wanted to get a contract audited recently, and it was going to cost me $17,000 for a week. And I can't afford that, so I I didn't get it audited. But what we're starting to see now is um, a lot of these yield farmers popping up. There's a new one called Burger today. There was one called Sushi last week. And they all test in production where they release the contract. There's always bugs in these contracts, but then the community goes and audit it afterwards. But Tony, what's your, I guess, your take on that current trend? And also, you've also done some work with uh, Viper, a, a language to try to get mm-hmm. rid of some of the common bugs. So what do you think about uh, both of those topics? Yeah, and I think writing smart contracts safely is definitely a challenge. Um, and it's definitely and if not as easy as uh, kind of just write a program and you're done, especially if you want to uh, end up holding significant amounts of money. Um, I definitely also think that the security situation has increased quite uh, or improved quite considerably since uh, 2016 and 2017. Like, uh, if you compare, you know, like MakerDAO and the security process that they went through uh, compared to, you know, the original DAO, there was much more work uh, that was gone into auditing it. And, you know, right, the thing has millions of ETH and so far it's been fine. Um, surprisingly fine, actually. Of uh, in Uniswap, um, you know, it's, Uniswap isn't that complicated. It's definitely much less than a DAO. It's just you know a single contract, a couple hundred lines of code, and um, it's been fine. Um, so a lot. Uh, uh, and as far as wallets go, the Gnosis Save Wallet is like the standard that everyone uses, and that's I think even gone through formal verification. Uh, so there's. A, it does seem like the contract writing environment is considerably safer than it was a few years ago, but. You know, at the same time, like there's definitely like this situation where uh, kind of the capabilities of the system just uh, kind of crash against uh, the realities of human impatience. And uh, you know, there's a lot of people who, uh, like, if you say, "Oh, you know, you instead of uh, safely creating a uh, creating a contract system in a year, you can safely create it in a month," like they're they're going to hear, "Oh, instead of unsafely creating one in a month, I can unsafely create one in three days," uh, and uh, that's what they do. Uh, so that's uh, I definitely expect that um, the kind of DeFi yield farming thing ecosystem is going to get a reckoning of some kind at some point. Um, like I, I definitely expect there to be a, 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 a one of these bugs of some of uh, some kind that leads to um, you know money either getting stuck or getting stolen in uh, kind of significant uh, quantities at some point, and maybe. I'm definitely hoping that when that happens, it'll happen in um, a way that uh, kind of scares people without actually being harmful to a, a, a to a really large extent. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, 
it's a challenge. Like it's uh, I mean, the the things that people are doing right now with all all of these uh, kind of yield and walk up contracts. Like there's definitely things about uh, things about them that scare me. Like even the thing that scares me is just like actively encouraging people to deposit high amounts of value into untested things. Like yield farming is almost a perfect storm of risk from a. a from that sense. Uh, so, yeah. Vitalik, can I ask you something here? Uh-huh. Um, you know, the, the world of exit scams is something people don't particularly like, but could somebody build one of these yield farming projects and write their own, um, let's say, their own exit scam into the, um, into the smart contract without anybody knowing and be able to steal funds from it? Right. So what would happen is like, so first of all, like when you write a contract and there is, I think, a community expectation that you have to publish the source code on Etherscan. I mean, and if you don't, then like a lot of people will yell about that. So then you have the, you know, the solidity on Etherscan and like you're going to see a bunch of people checking it and trying to audit it. And Ethereum definitely has this uh, kind of sub-community of uh, kind of volunteer, well, not quite volunteer because they yeah, end up getting uh, tens of thousands of dollars on Gitcoin because I know the community loves their work so much, but um, you know, there's kind of auditors that, um, and there's definitely people that uh, kind of go through and uh, try to check uh, all, uh, all of these uh, systems like basic and, and basically just like, Give them quick emergency audits while they're online. Um, mm-hmm. Who 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 audits the auditors? And I guess presumably the uh, the, the auditors uh, kind of implicitly audit each other. And if someone uh, misses something, then their word isn't taken uh, kind of for for as much in the future. But and can can you have multiple people audit the same script? I mean, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, that's what usually happens. Okay. Okay. Next up, I talked to Andrew, Taj, Vitalik and Patrick more about the technical differences between Bitcoin and ETH. But before that, I have a message from my amazing sponsors. So firstly, let's talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. They put the power in your hands to trade Bitcoin and they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, well, they have all the tools that you could possibly need. Whatever your experience, you can head over to Kraken.com as it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile-first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures, and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Also... Let's talk about BlockFi, who are the future of Bitcoin and financial services. With BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and start earning on your Bitcoin. I am a customer. I've been a customer all year, and I've just made over one Bitcoin in interest, which is super cool. Also, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan, and you can fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with their mobile app, you can now access all of their services on the go. With so much more coming this year, the company is definitely going to smash it again. And if you are interested in checking out BlockFi, firstly, I recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. One thing I also wanted to bring out was to do with, uh, I guess, a one of the big features of Bitcoin was multi-sig. You know, everyone loves multi-sig. Multi-sig is the, the saving grace of Bitcoin. Uh, 
In Ethereum, multi-sig isn't as popular from as, as I'm aware, and that's mostly because you need a smart contract wallet to implement multi-sig. Mm. And there's protocols, you know, derived, different ways to do that, like Genesis Safe, etc. have their own multi-sig setup. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like, because of what happened with Parity Wallet and the fact that they got hacked twice and they lost so much money, has this impacted people's willingness to use wallet contracts? Like, for example, would you lock up money in a wallet contract today uh, and they actually use, uh, you know, a nice multi-sig setup? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, the Ethereum Foundation, you know, still has the bulk of its coins in the same wallet that it had for five years, and it definitely has not made the choice to move to a single sig. Uh, so I definitely think that like, it uh, it would be wrong to uh, kind of take the poly- the parity wallet experience and uh, kind of transplant that into uh, multi sig wallets in general. Like as I mentioned, you know, Gnosis Safe has had a lot of like verifications and uh, and of attention on it, um, but. I think, but but it, it definitely is true that the parody situation did spook people off of Baltic for some time. Uh, but but at the same time, like uh, the smart contract security issues are not the only reason why multisig is having a hard time getting Ethereum adoption. Like, there's a lot of these subtler issues, and this is like maybe one of the uh, Ethereum equivalents to like you know the stupid stuff in Bitcoin, like the zero at the start of the multisig that you mentioned. Like basically. The problem that Ethereum has is that like, it tries hard to be this general purpose and abstract thing. But the one specific part of the system that is basically what kind of account can be a top level account. So what kind of account can like, basically uh, initiate a transaction and be directly paying for transaction fees. Like there's only one type of thing that's allowed, which is just a single signature ECDS, ECDSA account, right? What we call uh, EOAs, externally owned accounts. Uh, and, and we have like some EIPs and like I've been heavily involved in pushing them. Uh, account abstraction is uh, the name for this uh, that allow you to have smart contracts be at the top and smart contracts be paying for transactions. But until we have that, the problem is basically that if you have a smart contract wallet, then you would actually need to have two addresses. One address is a smart contract. The other address is a single signature address where the signature uh, single signature address holds the ETH that you use to pay for transaction fees. And so your transaction initiates in the single SIG and then it calls into the multi-SIG and then the multi-SIG uh, verifies the other signatures and then it forwards the call along. Um, and if you don't want to do that, then you could use one of these layer two gas market things where like someone else access the real layer for you, but then you have to pay for an entire extra transaction. Uh, so there are these uh, annoying complexities that uh, we definitely didn't think through well enough at the time when we were creating a protocol. And you know now we're finally starting to take moves to uh, I- improve the situation. But like, that... That definitely, I think, has been and like, not completely preventing, uh, but definitely hampering adoption of uh, multi sigs and some of the other smart like, things like social recovery, like for example, that I yeah, um, that I advocate from actually being used more. Yeah, I can definitely agree that the fact that um, the person who's authorizing the command and who's paying for the transaction is the biggest pain in the ass in Ethereum that I've had in the past year. Because we're building a third-party relayer called Any Sender, and that's the biggest issue we run into at the moment, and it's driving me crazy. Uh, so we have to tell everyone these wallet contracts. Um, I just want to ask one more question, and then we'll move on to the, you know the future of scalability because I think that'll be quite interesting. And this is really just to do with you know the birth of Ethereum, and now in hindsight, 
So I went on the original ethereum.org website to see what was promised. Because actually, I didn't get into Ethereum until about 2016. So I wasn't there. And I, mean, I was there in 2014. I just wasn't paying attention. And so what it says on the website is, when Ethereum was launched, it was called a decentralized and scalable world computer. Oh, actually, that's me reading it. Sorry. Now, what it said on the website was, Ethereum can be used to codify, decentralize, secure, and trade just about anything. Voting, domain names, financial exchanges, crowdfunding, company governance, contracts, and agreements of most kinds. Intellectual property and even smart and even smart property thanks to hardware integration. Um, and I took that from the Ethereum.org website from the web archive. So hopefully there's some integrity to what that statement was and hasn't been you know, changed in hindsight. Do you think anything based on that and how uh, Ethereum was advertised back in 2014, you know, was anything misleading? Do you think it's held that goal? And in hindsight, would you change anything about that? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the world computer metaphor is one of those things that was uh, kind of badly chosen to some extent, right? And I think like the intention of the world computer metaphor would be that like this is a, a special kind of computer that can be accessed by and used by anyone in the world. And it is a special purpose tool and the transactions on it are going to be uh, kind of expensive and you can only do a little bit of computation on it. But people took it to mean, you know, a computer powerful enough to meet the world's needs of computing, which it obviously isn't. And even with like hyperscalable ETH2 and rollups, you know, it's never going to be anywhere come within orders of magnitude of like being able to run the entire world's AWS stuff, right? Uh, so, like, as, as far as that list of applications, you know, people are using it for for, for uh, various financial applications. People definitely have made projects to use this for smart property. People are using it for uh, domain names. And in terms of scalability, I, like, I think we've been fairly clear since the beginning that scalability is going to uh, depend on future things like you know, either sharding or layer two protocols. And those are things that we've been really actively talking about in like, pretty much any Ethereum kind of discussion since uh, even 2014. Though uh, the the thing that I think you can say fairly is that we did underestimate the amount of time until uh, those technologies would be ready. Um, but and in in terms of just like fundamental feasibility, we've definitely come quite far. And you know now we're uh, in the uh, earlier phases of ETH two are in test nets and roll ups are which uh, actually would provide like up two orders of magnitude of scalability for a lot of things. Actually, are months away from uh, production. So. Awesome. Yeah, and I think like timing was probably the main issue where expectations in reality ended up uh, being relatively disjoint from each other. Yeah, Peter, did you want to say anything before I move on? Or No, no, we covered world computer and changing narratives. Uh, I, I know some Bitcoin people, that really frustrates them. Um, look, uh, I don't use Ethereum, but I... I I understand that things pivot, things change in technology. It's the way it is. That doesn't, that's never been something that's fussed me. Okay. So I guess we'll just move on to scalability now in the future of both of the networks. Um, There's really two ways to, I've I've tried to categorize scalability in two ways to keep it very simple. The first way (laughs) is given a set of hardware that we have, can we increase the throughput of the network? I.e., if it takes me 20 hours to verify the blockchain, can we reduce that to 10 hours? You know, that's a constant scalability. Um, you know, can we just simply improve the software to be more efficient? And the other one is, can we just reduce the computational load? 
You know, do we have to send every transaction to the network? Does the network need to process this entire smart contract? You know, what does the network really have to do in order to keep everything secure? So I'm going to touch upon the first category briefly, and then we'll dive into the second one a bit more. Are these uh, are these both points for both networks? Exactly. Yeah, let's go. With, let's go with Bitcoin first. Just have a, an Ethereum break. Awesome. Yeah. So I was going to make a. I always have this joke about Bitcoin developers. Hopefully, no one gets offend, offended by this. But I always compare them to assembly programmers who want to understand to the best of their ability every little little detail about how the implementation works, straight down to you know how many how many sigs can you have a multi sig? You know how many sig ops are allowed? How What's the exact nano or, or sorry microsecond to verify an ECDSA signature? And that's actually some of Andrew's work there. So back in I believe 2016, he was working on SEP 256K1, which is an implementation on how to verify signatures that was really way faster than what you know Satoshi was using before. Andrew, do you want to talk about some of that work? You know, why is that important to speed up verification of the signatures? Yeah. Um... So, so what Satoshi was using was actually just open SSL. He was using just these off-the-shelf, uh, kind of fairly general-purpose crypto libraries. Not not general-purpose, but uh, signature libraries that were designed to work with a variety of elliptic curves and and use very slightly tweaked algorithms, and they weren't really uh, super optimized. And so, Peter Wola, actually, I think in 2014, no earlier than that, it must have been, but that 2012. I don't know, a long time ago, uh, developed the, the libsecp256k1 library that you mentioned, uh, which I, I did a fair bit of work on in 2016. I'm, I'm still a maintainer, but I really arguably shouldn't be because I'm not so active on it these days, um, which re-implements the low-level signature protocol, uh, signing and verification that's used for Bitcoin script, and which actually is also used for Ethereum. I think all of the major Ethereum clients uh, eventually use libsecp. Uh, for doing signature verification. This is a very widespread uh, library. Like almost all Bitcoin software, almost all Ethereum software winds up using this because it's really hyper-optimized. And so to to your joke about uh, uh, Bitcoin developers being obsessed with these nitty-gritty details and stuff, I think, I mean, that is kind of a fair joke. As you mentioned, there's a whole other category of optimization. There are people in the Bitcoin world working on lightning and working on other scalability things but certainly the people doing like major protocol changes and were like working on bitcoin core especially the like consensus part and the crypto parts of bitcoin core yeah they're just like they really obsess over the smallest of details and actually a few of them over the years uh, well, a bunch of them have worked for me on my team and uh, in a, a for-profit company setting, this can be extremely frustrating sometimes. You know, they'll just be really getting into the weeds on like specific stuff, and I'm like, guys, we need to fucking deliver. Like, please, let's just move on, and uh, and then we'll go back and forth on some specific detail for weeks on end. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, the, your joke it made me smile. Certainly, I think it's fair. And <laughs> um, I've got a question for you as well. So this is also related to uh, I can't actually pronounce the protocol. Utrexo, Utrexo, Utrexo. There's a tree of them. Yeah, basically accumulators. So the idea is that um, I can, you know, validate transactions while keeping around everything that I need. I think it's the Utrexo set. You don't need to keep that around anymore. Yeah. You want to talk about a bit, bit more about that and how that? Sure. Yeah, and and I, I guess there's there's very similar uh, research done on the Ethereum side. So maybe we're talking about that, but I guess in Ethereum they call it stateless clients. And that name is sort of bugged me because it's like, well, there's still a state. It's just smaller. Um, but anyway, the, yeah, so the, 
similar idea. So the idea of utrexo is instead of keeping the whole state, uh, just keep this sort of root hash of it, which, you know, Ethereum has had, right? Ethereum has this state tree and, you know, every block commits to the root hash. And people have been talking about um, that kind of idea in Bitcoin as well for years and years and years of like, hey, what if you have UTXO commitments? You know, what if you have a hash of the UTXO set and like stick that in the block header or something? Um, the the nice part about UTXO is it uses a hash-based accumulator with some really nice scalability properties so that it the proofs are not too big and the proofs sort of uh, stack alongside each other. And there's a bunch of optimizations so that... Um, we can exploit a lot of the uh, spending patterns of Bitcoin. And so it, there's a sort of fun chart I like in the paper where it shows sort of the the popular, light, you know, the, the lifetimes of a Bitcoin UTXO, right? A Bitcoin UTXO is created when, as an output, and then at some point it gets destroyed as an input. And how long does it live? And so uh, the, the most popular lifetime for a UTXO is zero. Like the, the most popular is that a UTXO is con, you know, created and destroyed later in that same block. So it's like, well, why even? You don't even need proofs for that, right? Um, so, so a full node doesn't even have to touch the database for that. And it's sort of this power law going down. So we can uh, exploit that fact, and you, you can get pretty small proofs, despite it being, you know, in theory, it's linear proof size, um, and which is, the, you know, different than a lot of the more uh, mathematically complex accumulators. But it's kind of a, you know, simple version that maybe initially some people would say, oh, it's too simple, it's, it's not... But if you actually look at it in all the optimizations, it ends up being, you know, a 30% uh, data download overhead to, to do these really cool proofs and actually gets really fast uh, because you don't have to deal with level DB, which is, you know, both in Ethereum's case and Bitcoin's case, in many ways, the, the big bottleneck. Uh, so it's a nice way to sort of not have to worry about databases. Um, and those databases do grow unbounded in both Ethereum and Bitcoin's case. Like there's, while there's block size limits or gas limits, there are maybe, in, I, I shouldn't speak for Ethereum, but I know in Bitcoin's case, there's no real definite uh, bound on the UTXO set. It could get huge. It doesn't. It's about 70 million right now. Um, but if someone really was dedicated and wanted to attack, maybe I shouldn't say this, they could really make it a lot bigger mm-hmm. um, because it sort of treads water right now. Right now, in, in Ethereum, there's no like in-protocol hard limit on the state yeah. size. And right now, I think it's... Uh, I forget, it's somewhere in the hundreds of millions of objects. So like I want to say around 400 million, but it depends on like what you count and like, are you counting account storage slots, hashes and so forth, but it's like in that ballpark. Yeah, so it is, it's a bit bigger than Bitcoins, but it's, you know, still same order of magnitude. And I, I, it's not like, you know, not like exponentially bigger or anything like that. So, but in both cases, it is a a long-term worry. I mean, in Ethereum, I guess you're, thinking more of you through, but in Bitcoin, it's sort of, yeah, this is a long-term scalability issue. If while you historic blocks, once you ver- verified them, you can't really get rid of the current state if you want to keep validating. Um, and so that's what the UTXO idea is that, okay, you, you, now with this, you can get rid of the current state. Um, and now the only downside is you need to the, like accept these proofs and some nodes on the network have to be bridge nodes. Um, and so the, a lot of, a lot of the work was, how do you make it easy to run a bridge node? You know, so one, someone can run a bridge node on like a regular old laptop um, in order to let other people run nodes on, you know, much smaller computers. And just to bring us back to like, maybe like a more basic audience, you aren't highly technical. Sure. What the state actually is, is just everyone's balance on the network. Yeah, so if I run a Bitcoin core on my laptop, 
you know, I don't want to keep around, you know, everyone's balance on my laptop at all times, especially if they, no one, someone hasn't spent their coins in six years because they're hardcore hodlers. So what you could do is use this uh, accumulator to store a little bit of information. And then every time they go to spend their coins, they provide proof that they still own these coins and they're still valid. And that's yeah. the whole point of it. Yeah, philosophically, it's kind of nice because right now the model is, yeah, you do store everyone else's coins on your computer and it's kind of annoying. Um, and it'd be better if it's sort of the responsibility of the people who own those coins. You know, you have to keep track of your private keys. And in this case, maybe you also have to keep a proof that your your coins exist so that you can sort of prove they exist to everyone else when you're spending. Um, that's not really part of a lot of these models because it sort of conflicts with previous note like if you're starting bitcoin from scratch maybe you could do it that way and it would be really scalable and really cool um but because it's so hard to change bitcoin um it, it you you kind of need these nodes to sort of bridge the old and new softwares maybe someday you could get rid of uh the old the old version but probably not for any time soon yeah and i think what's really cool to highlight and this is why i brought this up is that while Bitcoin lacks any substantial upgrade as features, you know, it's not like the, you know, the scripting language has been improved. Um, you know, they're not really adding new features to Bitcoin. A lot of these changes are node policy changes. You can change your local node. And you don't need to tell the rest of the network you're doing this, but you can just work on making the, you know, that actual client way more efficient for verifying transactions. You're not changing the protocol. You're just changing the software. And anyone can do that locally in their computer. Now, yep. what I normally find in the Ethereum world is that a lot of the focus is on changing the protocol and not necessarily the software. I always get the impression that the software is sort of just staying alive and, you know, keeping its head above water. And a lot of the focus, at least all of the vocal points, is not really about the changes to the software itself to make it more. Mm. So maybe, Vitaly, you can comment on that more, you know. Is that a fair reflection? Yeah. Is that wrong? I know. Just sure. So I think like my mindset towards scaling is that you know there's scaling techniques to get you three x and there's scaling techniques to get you hundred x and so obviously you should spend most of your time on the hundred x and so that's why kind of our mental effort tends to go toward like sharding and l twos and so forth. But I mean at the same time there I, uh, there has been like improvements on to clients right and uh, you can even see this on EtherScan right like if you go to Ether scan and you look at historical uncle rates i think it's etherscan.io slash chart slash uncles then like you can see how in uh, 2017 when we started to see substantial usage the uncle rates went really high and then sometime in 2018 to 2019 the uncle rates just dropped right back down to about seven percent like well almost the same as what we had when we had empty blocks but blocks were still full right and well, what happened there actually was client improvements, right? It was improvements to, to propagation. Like one of the clients, I think, like actually implemented a thing where you propagate a block after you verify the proof of work, but with, before you verify everything else. There have been improvements in block processing time. There have been improvements to databases. Like I think a couple of months back, uh, Geth had something that reduced its uh, data consumption storage amounts by like something like 30% or so. Um, there have been... I mean, fixes to bugs, obviously, like, as I mentioned, in 2016, we had this like huge marathon of basically being forced to solve all of the quadratic execution attacks in Ethereum. Um, so, like, both things happen. Um, I mean, it could also just be an artifact of the fact that, like, for whatever contingent cultural reasons, researchers are louder than developers that... Uh, like while both uh, strands of like of hard work are happening, people hear more about one one um, rather than the other. But 
again, we've been trying to kind of balance that out recently, right? And like we've been seeing uh, on uh, the Ethereum blog, but there's work on uh, kind of what we call the ETH 1.X initiative. And some of that is protocol changes, but a lot of that is also client uh, changes. Uh, so I guess, as you mentioned, we have uh, work happening on in stateless clients, which, uh, but it's not necessarily fully stateless. Sometimes, sometimes it's also partially stateless, like where instead of like having the entire state targeting nodes, having like say a few gigabytes of state and uh, relying on proofs for everything else. Uh, so those things are all kind of happening and they're happening in parallel. Um, which is definitely something that's sometimes hard to get across, right? Like uh, it's not a matter of like, oh, it's the choice of one or the other. It's like, no, you do this thing and you do the other thing. Awesome. So I can, now, now what I'll do is um, I'm going to move on to the other side of scalability. And this is, and even this can be categorized down the two things. So the question is, you know, how can we reduce the computational load on the network? The first approach is fancy cryptography. Uh, one of the ironies in cryptography research is that cryptographers mostly focused on privacy for the past 20 years. And now a lot of these snarks are evolving and Zcash is a snark for privacy, but actually snarks are great as a scalability solution. You know, they allow you to provide a very small piece of information that's quick to verify, but actually in the background, there was like, you know, loads of computation that was done. And the other approach is just to take everything off chain altogether as much as you can. So, you know, Alice and Bob does, you know, like a lightning channel, Alice and Bob does the payments and they just send the final settlement to Bitcoin. You know, in this case, you know, they just don't send it to the network unless they have to. So let's talk about fancy cryptography a little bit. Um, and we're just going to keep this quite brief because fancy cryptography, you can go down a deep rabbit hole and I don't think people really want to go into a deep rabbit hole about fancy cryptography. So one question is, why is fancy cryptography like snarks better than just improving the software? You know, what is the big difference there? Does someone want to summarize that for us? Yeah, and I think like fancy cryptography uh, basically provides the 100x um, that I talked about, right? Like I, the, th- the reason I think why this uh, big move toward general purpose uh, zero-knowledge proofs uh, that we've been seeing over the last decade has been so powerful, right, is that you can... And if invent the primitive once, and then once the primitive is invented, then uh, people can just go and use it, use it for whatever things uh, kind of much more quickly, right? Because it's general purpose. And so it's not about creating a new protocol. It's about just like, applying an existing protocol with a, a slightly different circuit or whatever. Uh, so the reason why it's 100x is basically because like, you can generate these proofs where you perform a one-time effort to make a proof that says like all of these statements about all of these transactions are valid. Um, and then you publish it to the chain, but then verifying that proof becomes this very uh, efficient uh, kind of sim- a quick operation um, that is uh, takes a fairly small amount of time, like be almost regardless of uh, how much information it ends up proving. So, like zk rollups are that one of these uh, scalability strategies that rely on uh, the on the fancy cryptography. So the idea is basically that you. It's kind of like this hybrid between layer two and layer one in some ways, right? You you don't take everything off chain. You still have like a few uh, bytes of data. I think it's about like 16 bytes of data on chain for every transaction. Um, but then you also, um, instead of uh, um, providing all the signatures and uh, provide um, doing all the computation, directly verifying them on chain, you just have a proof that says, 
I know about signatures and I have personally run the computation that says if you take this previous Merkle hash of the state and you apply these transactions, um, then you get this other Merkle hash. And I, and I know this and I've proven this. And then here, here's a proof and you can just verify this proof that proves that Nick, I've run this computation that's verified this uh, entire whole bunch of stuff, right? Uh, so it's very powerful. Um, it also gets into one of the kind of trade-offs that I think we see a lot of the time where the fancier cryptography, like this also applies to kind of BLS uh, signatures versus Schnorr, for example, right? Like the, like the cryptography that's fancier and relies on that kind of harder assumptions and is um, much more challenging at the lower levels often ends up presenting a much simpler and uh, a kind of more easy to use black box at the higher levels, right? So you're kind of taking complex, you're trading off uh, of complexity on one side uh, for uh, enough complexity on the other side. But, you know, so on the one hand, yes, these uh, Stark protocols and are, are fairly tricky and complicated, but on the other hand, like once they're there and once you turn them into libraries and, you know, you have Socrates and Sircom and so forth, then, like you can just go and use that and make developers that don't even understand the nuances of snarks can go and like build privacy preserving things like, yeah, like tornado cache and scalability, things like loopering and so forth. Yeah. I can pick up on that. So there's two real points that were made there. One was about rule up and I want to cover rule up in about two or three questions. Cause that's sort of like layer two in a way. The, the second one was the assumptions for snarks, you know, snarks, are very complicated. They're fancy cryptography and they add in additional assumptions that uh, people may or may not be comfortable with. So this is what I want to ask Andrew for now is um, Andrew worked on Bulletproofs, which is another snark. It's now implemented in Monero is inside uh, Liquid Network as well. And that was also really focused on privacy, you know, so you can have, you know, privacy preserving transactions on these uh, different blockchains. But I just want to get your impression, Andrew. So why is Bulletproofs not in Bitcoin yet? You know, will it ever? I mean, we're still struggling to get Snore in the Bitcoin. I asked in Bitcoin Wizards back in 2014 when Snore going to get in, and I was told within a few months, and it's now six years later and it's still not in. Um, you know, what's holding up Snore? Actually, that might even be first. Let's talk about that first. What's holding up Snore? Because I know you have some good question, answers around that. Snore is a very simple signature scheme. You guys are building really cool stuff on top that aggregate signatures into one big signature. Um, what's the, the holdup? What are the problems you've run into with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I'll, I'll try to summarize it, it fairly quickly. Um, so we were talking about Schnorr, as you say, like six years ago. Um, we first encountered it. It looked like it was, it was a much simpler um, signature scheme. It had a provable, pro, um, it was provably secure and a, a much saner model than ECGSA can be proven secure in. Um, it appeared to be a lot more efficient. Uh, to verify Schnorr signatures, you don't need to do an operation that's called a modular inversion that you do need to do to verify um, ECDSA signatures. And what happened, actually, a lot of the initial delays, believe it or not, is that we realized we could verify, we found better ECDSA verification algorithms, and Schnorr actually seemed like less of a pressing thing for a little while. Um, it seemed like all these efficiency benefits that we thought we would get, we kind of weren't going to get. Um, and these um, kind of philosophical, provable security benefits. I mean, sure, but ECDSA has been used in the wild since 1990, and, and I think we're in practice, everybody's kind of comfortable with ECDSA. And then the other big benefit of Schnorr was that you could do multi-signatures with it very efficiently. Um, and by multi-signatures here, I mean a specific form of multi-signature, where you have multiple parties who can combine to produce a single key that represents all of them, 
and then they can interactively produce signatures with that key so that all of them need to participate to sign a message. Um, but what the blockchain sees is just one key, one signature. There's sort of an obvious way, if you naively look at the Schnorr verification um, algorithm, to do this, where you take the elliptic curve points representing everyone's keys, you add them together in the sense of, of adding elliptic curves, and then everybody kind of like does the signature signing protocol together. Like everybody does the first half of the protocol, they add together their components, and then do the second half, and then they add together their components of that, and then you, you just take these sums. Everything's just sums, so it's so simple. And we ran into a series of problems with this. I guess like two, two categories of problems with this. Um, one was that we realized that if Schnorr signatures, if we use the Schnorr signature as described in the Schnorr paper, where we didn't commit to the public key, there were certain weird Bitcoin things that are weird cryptocurrency things that we might want to do that would suddenly become insecure. So there is this worry about needing to commit to this public key and there's this, I guess, trade-off between committing to the public key and then deviating from standards that were out there um, and not committing to the public key and then having this kind of fragility that might cause problems with wider crypto systems. The bigger issue that we were having with Schnorr signatures, though, was that we, to do this multi-signature scheme, we ran into a lot of trouble. The scheme I just described, where you just add things together, that's just woefully insecure. It's very, um, it's very easy to break that. Um, so we came up, um, Peter Willa and Greg Maxwell and I came up with this uh, different fancier scheme that we thought would be secure, that would eliminate a bunch of these attacks, where basically everybody's public key, we would re-randomize it in a certain way. You take the key, you would hash it, and then multiply the key by the hash, and then that would just like kill any structure in the key, and, uh, and then you couldn't use it to do these structured key attacks. So you know, that's also broken. There's something called Wagner's algorithm out there that uh, can, can be used to break this quite efficiently. So then we came up with another scheme that, um, and actually we submitted this to, um, to, oh no, what conference was it? Maybe Financial Crypto or something? It, uh, it got rejected by a reviewer who was like, hey, you didn't cite, um, so first of all, your proof sucks, um, which is sucked because it turned out it was insecure. Secondly, why didn't you cite this 2006 paper by, by Blair and, and uh, by Mahir Blair and Greg Nevin? So you look at this 2006 paper, and it does something like complementary but, but different from what we were doing with multi-signatures. It gave us a way to take a whole bunch of different public keys and get a single signature where instead of collapsing the keys into one, you still have separate keys, but you get one signature. And so that is something that we now call signature aggregation. So then we went on this like long, like multi, I guess it was over a year, like detour, thinking about signature aggregation versus what we now call key aggregation and trying to, to, to separate those two and figure out which of those two things we actually wanted in Bitcoin, what was going to provide the most bang for the buck, what was going to be uh, the most efficient, and then also you know, what's going to minimize bike shedding, what can we come up with a coherent proposal Andre, for. Andre, just before you continue, can I try to separate what that means, just in case people oh, get yeah. that discussion? So like, the original goal was that you had 10 parties, they all want to do a signature together, you want to combine those signatures, and then they authorize the transaction. Where I think what you mean by signature aggregation, which is the second thing you just like basically in the story, this is the point where you just discovered it, is to take any one signature and just combine them all together. Is that how is that correct? Or Yeah, that, that's correct. Yeah. Um so the, the difference, I guess um an important difference there is when we're talking about key aggregation, 
we're thinking about a bunch of people who all own like a single coin and they want to have that coin like be controlled by a joint key that represents all of them. When we talk about signature aggregation, maybe there are multiple people with multiple coins, like all doing their own thing, but we want to be able to somehow collapse all of their signatures into one. Um, so for a little while, we were super excited about signature aggregation. We were like, oh, like actually this is a more efficient thing. I mean, there are more signatures and keys on the chain. That's a weird statement and I'm not gonna justify it, but um, um, like we really want to collapse signatures together. Um, and collapsing keys together is, is maybe something that's less of a priority or something that we can do like a different protocol or, or I don't know. But then when we started trying to design an actual protocol for signature aggregation, we ran into a whole bunch of weird interactions with other stuff. Um, it would change the transaction verification model in Bitcoin Core and another Bitcoin verification software, where rather than a transaction being valid, if every input is valid, suddenly there's like this weird interplay between all of the different inputs. It would compromise our ability to soft fork new features into Bitcoin because when you are deciding how to verify an aggregate signature, you need to see some input data from each of the unaggregated signatures as a verifier. You need not, not as much, but you need to see a little bit. And, um, and then most of the software mechanism we had in mind might actually change which signatures were available to different verifiers. So suddenly things that used to be softworks would become hard forks, and people were, were upset about that. Um, and it, it had, was going to force us to change our thinking about what, what different fork mechanism might look like. There were bad interactions with blind signatures. There were blind, bad interactions with some other like weird signature protocols. And, and um, it really just kind of blew up in our faces complexity-wise. So we kind of set that aside and then went back to looking at, um, at just key aggregation. So we came up with a new scheme called MUSIG, um, which is basically provides both key... It provides key aggregation. It also provides uh, signature aggregation. And we thought maybe, uh, how do I want? How do I want to summarize? I think we, we went back to just looking at key aggregation, saying that let's just try to um, try to have multiple parties who all produce an aggregate key. And I think actually the reason that we really started looking at that was we came up with Taproot. And I, I might be getting the, the history in, in the wrong order here, but it's, um, it was all this is all still a long time ago. I'm not even yet to the present. But when we designed Taproot, we had this protocol. We submitted this. Um, it, I think it even passed peer review. I think it was, it was fairly uh, um, far along in the uh, publication process. And we kind of got blindsided. Um, uh, a few different authors, um, Ford, Nevin, um, two others who I'm, I'm blanking on, published a paper showing not only that our MUSIG preprint was insecure, but that it was impossible to prove any such scheme secure using the techniques we were using. It was kind of a, a ridiculous proof. It wasn't like our paper was wrong. It was our paper couldn't possibly be right, um, which is a, a very... Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was kind of funny. I was kind of like blindsided. That's not, that's not the kind of rejection you want to get, right? You don't want to like hear you're wrong. You want to, like, well, you don't want to hear you're wrong. You certainly don't want to hear like it's impossible for you to be right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I have a proof. I have a proof that you're wrong. Um, so then we had to modify. There was actually a fairly straightforward modification to the protocol. We added an extra round um, to to the protocol. It became three rounds instead of two. 
and then we were able to get to the proof uh, to go through. And, and we were kind of, uh, it kind of freaked us out that uh, we had written up this proof and none of us had noticed this mistake in our proof. Um, not only that, but there are multiple other papers that have been published, um, like going back like 20 years, and they, these other papers had like the same mistake in them. So actually, there there are a bunch of different protocols that were knocked out by the same paper. Um, so then we went back, and then there's this whole whole thing of, of fixing the protocol and and you know building our confidence that we were able to design secure multi-signatures uh, after all backup. Um, and meanwhile, of course, we're getting a, a snark from folks on Twitter and and from a uh, from people just coming saying like, you know, Schnorr invented this this scheme in 1990, but you're talking about putting it into Bitcoin in like 2013. That sounds like me. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like, guys, like, come on, this is a joke. Okay. Like, it's so simple. Like, you can fit a Schnorr signature. You can fit the equation onto like, I don't know, it's, it's just, you can just say it. It's S equals K plus X E. Like, that, that's it. How hard is that? It's one, uh, one equation. And uh, so we had that difficulty. And then when we started actually trying to implement the multi-signature stuff, um, we ran into other issues related to communication between the different signers. Um, so music itself actually isn't too bad in this respect. But when you try to do threshold signature, you start getting into like really complicated things where you need like private communication channels between parties. You need like reliable broadcast channels between parties. You have to think about authentication. You have to figure out how are you talking to different people? How are you assuring that, that different people are receiving the same data? Blah, 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 blah. So we have some protocol difficulties with this stuff. Meanwhile, on the Taproot uh, implementation front, because we landed on Taproot as like the way to get short signatures into Bitcoin. Like it's, it's really quite a compact, simple protocol that doesn't have a lot of surface area to be bike shedding. Meanwhile, on the Taproot front, we're implementing that. We found, and, and here's like classic Bitcoin hyper-optimization. We found that in some cases, um, like fairly normal wallet transactions might be one byte larger in Taproot than they would otherwise be because one our keys. <laughs> one byte, yeah. Because our keys are 33 bytes in secb 2 k one and otherwise we might be able to use like a 32-byte hash or something. I, I don't remember exactly under what circumstances you, you wind up comparing a hash to a key, but but that, that's, that's the deal. Um, and so we thought, okay, let's compress the keys to 32 bytes. And then we spent forever doing that. And then there are multiple ways that you could do that. And eventually we settled on one. Um, and... I don't know. It's just it's just been a whole thing. I mean, um, maybe maybe I can summarize this just um, okay. um, <laughs> because I guess it's like a long-winded <laughs> story to say it's really hard. Snore <laughs> looks easy, but even that's hard. And I guess that was sort of Vitalik's original point was that you know because Snore has a very basic assumption that's just discrete log. You know, one question I wanted to ask was if you use something like BLS with pairings, you sort of get a lot of this just out of the box. So what's like the, the motivation to go down the snore route and really pursue these new protocols versus adding in a pairing assumption and just taking BLS out of the box, which I guess That's Ethereum would do. Uh, what do I mean what Ethereum did do? Paddy, you can't keep calling it snore. Oh, snore. I can't pronounce it. How do you- it's snore. You snore. Call it snore. <laughs> Come on, man. Um, so one, one reason is that I think historically we, we did actually expect snore would be significantly simpler. Um, although now, now we know, now that we've seen all of these issues, and, and you're right, almost all of these issues, you run into them and you're like, oh, BLS would have solved this, because BLS uh, doesn't involve any randomness. Uh, the keys are automatically aggregatable, the signatures are automatically aggregatable. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of nice simplicity that you get. Um, but there are 
So first off, as you say, there are a bunch of um, concerns about the pairing. So if we introduce the pairing assumption, so, so I guess for, for the audience, a pairing assumption is a cryptographic assumption. It's some computational problem that needs to be very difficult, otherwise the signature scheme is insecure. And this is just how you do cryptography. Like every single crypto system that you think about, there's some underlying hard problem that we've thrown, you know, like 10 or 20 or 50 years of, of research at trying to do efficiently. We can't figure out how to do it efficiently. And then we just assume it's impossible and, and design crypto systems assuming that it's impossible. So in Bitcoin, we have like these very, very simple standard assumptions. The elliptic curve, discrete log problem is hard in the random oracle model is, is a compact way to say it. Pairings would introduce a new one. So there is some suspicion about pairings because pairings are, are relatively new. Um, I think the BLS paper was from, was it 2006 or was it 98? I'm, I'm blanking on. Pairings definitely started to exist in the 90s. And I think they were originally introduced in the context of being attacks on elliptic curves, right? Like yes, that, that's right. To, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so that, that was in the 90s, and the BLS paper was the first like, kind of positive use of pairings. Um, so, so pairings are, are a bit younger, um, I guess like 10 years younger than um, more standard elliptic curve assumptions. They came into being as a method of attack on elliptic curve, uh, on existing elliptic curve schemes, which I think put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Like, like, like this is some like, weird, surprising, algebraic trick that breaks things. This is a breaking thing. You know, it's a bad thing because it breaks stuff. Um, I really do think there's like a subconscious aversion to pairings for that reason, but also because it's younger and pairings have not really been used in production systems, the way that elliptic curve signatures have, the way that ECDSA has. I'm not aware of any major uh, um, system with any real money or, or any large number of users that uses BLS um, that isn't like part of very recent, like the last two or three years, cryptocurrency kind of stuff. Um, and even then, I'm not sure that there's any, anything that's, that's like big and, and out there. Um, so there's suspicion of these pairing assumptions because they haven't been tested in real life. And then there's another category of suspicions related to pairing software not being as mature and pairing software not being like they're not being like production crypto libraries that do pairings that are out there and that have been battle tested and so forth that uh, will provide constant time signing or that will, um, I don't know, just have the, the kind of QA cycles that we've had on something like LibSecP, which is very widely used, or even that we've had on OpenSSL, which has certainly had its fair share of problems, but, you know, it has been out there for 30 years, and a lot of people use it. And, uh, I mean, some people look at it. So Bitcoin has is a, is a real aversion to changing its security model, ever. Um, and this particular change is one that really like, I, I personally wouldn't be so comfortable with. And then there's also this kind of like common knowledge issue where like I think that the community wouldn't like it, so I'm not going to bother trying to propose it or I'm not going to champion it um, because I think people are going to get upset at me. And it may be that other people are getting upset because they think other people are going to get upset and, and actually maybe we'd be fine with it. And does everyone's upset then? Yeah, but I, I actually I don't think that's... In, it, in the case of pairings, I think that actually there is legitimate... Um, opposition to it just because it's like a new and, and mm -hmm. kind of less tested thing. Um, and then another aspect is the performance. That it is slower to verify pairings than it is to verify um, regular signatures by a factor of about 10, I think. Although maybe we've reduced that to five. There's, there was some work reducing it to five. Oh, and then there was a 2016 paper 
that um that provided that that was an attack on pairing that required all of the parameters to be increased and then after that all the efficiency improvements got just like eaten up because they had to increase the parameters i think it was briefly like more competitive performance but then it turned out we had to increase the parameters so it's a, good, it's a good way to summarize it, just so we don't go on too much about performance. Yeah. Is, um, the reason why BLS is not introducing the Bitcoin, while we give you all these lovely unicorn properties that make everyone really happy, is mostly because one is slightly slower at the moment. It's a younger technology in the sense that, it, and it's not battle tested as well as ECDSA or, or I guess, snore in this case. Um, and it introduces a new trust assumption that didn't exist before. But the trade-off is it means you need to design new protocols that work on top of it, on top of Bitcoin, to get similar properties. And they're quite hard to get right so far as well. So it's like pushing complexity up, pushing complexity away from the protocol, but more on the client-side implementation and for what the nodes do. Yeah, and I think like pairings are definitely a kind of devilishly hard. Like I think pairings are the only cryptographic protocol where it, uh, even after I wrote an article explaining how pairings work, I still don't feel like I have a full intuitive grasp of like how how the heck does this uh, thing possibly exist? Um, so like I think it's definitely fair to have that um, that kind of aversion to it um, at this. In terms of just efficiency of libraries, on the Ethereum 2.0 side, we've been spearheading this kind of standardization effort, and this includes the various Ethereum 2.0 limitations. We're also talking to Filecoin, Algorand, and Definity, and these other groups. And so there's definitely been a lot of work on, uh, well, first of all, standardizing around the BLS 12.381 curve. Um, This is the one that everyone's uh, kind of rallying around after some of the the recent attacks. I mean, Zcash itself has um, upgraded to it. And, and then also creating these like really ultra-optimized implementations that there's now a lot of pressure to do because I mean, the E2 protocol really heavily ends up relying on these um, aggregate signatures and multi-signatures. Uh, but, <clears throat> so things are improving, but I definitely agree that like efficiency-wise, there's uh, going to be this fairly durable difference between... Like how long it takes to verify uh, to to do a parent computation versus how long it takes to just multiply an elliptic curve points by a scalar, which is what you have to do in in the simpler protocols. Awesome. Um, I'm going to move topic quickly as well. Um, I just want to finish off with this final topic. I mean, I guess like one big thing we've had throughout this talk in Bitcoin is that Bitcoin doesn't want to do anything on the blockchain. It wants to keep everything off chain as much as it can. It even wants to reduce the number of signatures you have to verify in the one big, you know, one signature instead of ten. That's the whole point of the Musig stuff. You know, the whole point there is there's one sig in the blockchain. That one signature is going to do everything. It's going to hide everything, and everything's going to be inside that signature. Um, and the idea there is everything's off chain. Now, there's two real big, you know, themes in the off chain world. One is the Lightning Network, and one are these Plasma rollups. And I'm just going to give a quick summary, just so everyone has a high level idea what these are about. The Lightning Network's fairly straightforward. You have two parties, Alice and Bob. They lock up coins in this big black box. When, you know, so Alice puts in one coin, Bob puts in one coin. When Bob sends a coin to Alice, he signs a message and he gives it to Alice and he says, Alice, you're now the owner of two coins. And that's kept private between Alice and Bob. When Alice wants to pay Bob, Alice will then send a new message to Bob and say, Bob, you're now the owner of these two coins. So you basically have this like, you know, like black box where the coins are going back and forth rapidly between Alice and Bob, and all of that is kept off-chain. And when they're done, 
they close the channel, they send the final balance to the blockchain, and it's confirmed. Now, the nice thing there is that Alice and Bob don't have to trust each other. And when they do a transfer, it's, you know, it's redeemable. It's confirmed. They could instantly send it to a Bitcoin and get their money out fairly quickly. And now when, with the Lightning Network, you basically have, like, you know, multiple channels. And the idea is that if Alice has a channel to Bob, Bob has a channel to Carline, and Carline has a channel to Dave, Alice can pay Dave via Bob and Carline. And they can synchronize a single payment across that route. You know, that's the whole point of the Lightning Network. But there's loads of problems around that. Everyone has to put collateral into these channels, so it's very collateral heavy. And um, you have to find a route that connects Alice and Dave, and that route might not always exist. And it's really, really good for pairways payments. It's not good for multi-parties. Like having, you know, 10 people go join. Like, Uniswap just wouldn't work on Lightning. You know, it only works for, like, a small set of parties at any given time. On the, on the flip side... In the roll-up world and the plasma world, the idea there is that instead of trying to confirm these transactions quickly, why don't we sort of just do like a big batch? So you have an operator, the operator just waits around, and Alice comes and she sends a transaction. The operator's job is to take all of these off-chain transactions, create an off-chain block, and periodically commit that you know to Ethereum or to the base chain. So they're basically just a block producer. In that case, in Rollup, you post all of the data to the blockchain. In Plasma, you keep the data off-chain, and you just post these little hashes, these checkpoints. The trade-off is that you have to wait around maybe maybe 10 minutes, one hour, until the operator poses those blocks. So your transactions aren't really redeemable or confirmed until they're confirmed on the blockchain. Now, the point of using the snarks there and these ZK Rollups is what you're saying is, I post a block. I can remove a lot of the data. I don't need most of the data now. I just need enough data just that you know the blockchain can keep a record of it. And the snark basically proves that all the transactions in this block are valid. So this rollout block could have 100,000 transactions. It gets posted to the blockchain. But all you have to do is verify one tiny proof, which is probably the same speed of a single transaction. And then you can verify that this entire block of transactions is correct. So what you're really keeping off-chain is the computation. The data still hits the blockchain, but most of the computations kept off chain. So it's a bit like the Bitcoin. It's actually a bit like the Bitcoin ideology. You know, you should do minimal computation on the blockchain as much as you can, and you take all of that off chain, and the operator just botches that all together. So that's like a very high level overview of you know Lightning versus rollups. And if you didn't understand that, I'm sorry because I mean you guys do, but I mean anyone listening because you trying to describe that within two minutes is hard. Um, so one thing I wanted to bring up, because I guess, Vitalik, you've been talking about roll-ups a lot. Um, what do you think's the hold-up so far? Now, I mean, the gas prices are a bit crazy at the moment. They're four or 500 guay. costs costs $6 to do a single transfer. Um, what do you think would be in the bottlenecks for the roll-ups? Mm. So there's two families of roll-ups, right? There's uh, the optimistic roll-ups and the ZK roll-ups. So the main difference being that optimistic roll-ups use uh, fraud proofs. Uh, so... You know, the operator publishes a block and they just publish what they claim is the result. And then if uh, the, they're wrong, then someone else would actually would basically publish uh, this fraud proof that and and in that case, what would happen is that the, compu- the entire computation would act- of that particular block would actually be run on chain. So it's this kind of interactive game where you only do a uh, computation if someone thinks that someone else is wrong and whoever's wrong ends up losing you know, like a bunch of money in, in their deposit. Or you have ZK rollups where instead you use uh, 
make these uh, zero knowledge proofs to just directly proof validity without needing uh, interactive games for it. And surprisingly enough, right, it's the ZK rollups that came first. And uh, you might think that um, optimistic rollups are simpler because they don't rely on the fancy stuff, but I think the reason why the ZK rollups came first is because the optimistic rollups are trying to do more and they're trying to do more because for now they can do more, right? Basically, the challenge is that zero-knowledge proofs tends to be really good at structured computation. So we're at a computation where, you know, you can uh, put all the computation in a big table and you verify the exact same equations millions of times and it's very efficient if you describe it in that format which is good for, like, say, hash verification and signature verification. But for general purpose computation, efficiently making a zero-knowledge proof is much harder, right? And it's considered to be one of the kind of, holy grails of uh, snarking to be able to kind of, snark a general purpose uh, virtual machine execution. And there has been progress. Uh, so, like, for example, the Aztec team, uh, which did Plunk, they released this thing called Plookup, which um, allow, uh, allows efficient proving of uh, functions with lookup tables, which is uh, actually a significant boost to uh, virtual machines. And there is um, the uh, Cairo from Starkware. And I think they use some similar technology in some areas, but not in other areas. Uh, so... It's been improving, but it's still quite far from being able to kind of practically verify EVM execution. Whereas an optimistic rollup, like, okay, hey, you know, you got the, the EVM and like you can just uh, like go and write whatever verifier you want and it's not particularly hard, right? So optimistic rollups, uh, they're trying to do more. And what I mean is they're trying to support uh, basically an EVM equivalent environment on top of a layer two. And that's something that the developers love because the develop, for a developer, what that means is that they can just take their existing application, they just like hit compile and hit deploy again, just using slightly different software. And it works uh, kind of roughly the same way that it worked before, except the fees that would be a hundred times lower. Whereas with a ZK rollup, it's just for you know payments or decks or a, a couple of other use cases for now, right? But on the other on the other hand, the zk rollups we already have Loopring on chain, we already have zk sync on chain, or we already have uh, Starkware's diversify on chain, and and in the rollups and the third, I'll, I'll briefly mention the third category, Plasma, right, which has more off chain data, the OMG network, which is also payment specific once again, right? So the payment specific stuff already exists. So, you know, the internet of money does cost less than five cents a transaction again. Um, yay. Um, but um, the more general purpose application things don't yet exist. And it looks like technology for those will be ready in a few months. Um, but, you know, that's the thing that I think most people are waiting for because, like, if ultimately Ethereum is you know, all about like, doing things that are more than just moving coins around. So that's what people are expecting. Yeah, I have, I have one, one, one question for this, and then I'll move on to the Bitcoin stuff because it's obviously a Bitcoin podcast. So, um, yeah. Um, so my impression of the rollup. So you have Eve two, and Eve two is a sharded solution, and it's being built, you know. But if you look at rollups, rollups are like shards, and the idea of a shard is that only the people who are in that shard in that blockchain care about validating it. You know, if I'm if there's a shard for hotels and a shard for train bookings. If, I, if I'm not booking a train, I don't care about the train bookings. I just care about the hotels because I'm booking a hotel. Um, so do not think like rule-ups is a bit like getting a sharded solution into Ethereum through the back door. Mm-hmm. And it might even look a bit hacky, maybe a bit like right. Devolution. All these cryptocurrencies are all hacky. 
and maybe that'll take over version two. Right. Uh, so rollups are powerful, but they do have the one limitation, which is that you do need some amount of data on chain for every transaction. And the reason why you need on cha- data on chain is basically because in order to guarantee that people can withdraw, you need to have enough data on chain so that anyone can reconstruct the rollups internal state and of the rollups internal and you know, balance Merkle tree that contains the balances and so forth. Um, and so it's about 16 bytes on chain uh, for most of for, for the rollups that are designed well. Um, and that's, uh, you know, six times less than uh, kind of regular transactions. But then uh, the uh, scaling factor goes up to about 100 because they get rid of all the computation. Right. But there is this amount of data. And so ultimately, the capacity of the system is bounded by something like 3000 TPS right now. And in the long term, you know, like if we want to get more users and more cheaper non-financial applications, we're going to have to go even higher than 3000 TPS. And so that basically means scaling the data layer and designing the data layer in such a way that you can verify its integrity without every single participant having to personally download and check um, the uh, availability of all of the data. Uh, So like that's uh, kind of the core technical reason why I think in the long term, if we want to kind of achieve the system's full potential, like you basically need to have rollups and charting and stack the two on top of each other. And but you know, like if you if you have different trade offs, so you could definitely get to you know, like a medium level of uh, scalability with just rollups. Yeah, so I guess I'm just going to summarize that. So I guess with rollups, um, because most of the computation doesn't happen anymore, all you know via the blockchain. The main bottleneck to scalability is no longer computation. It's really just data availability and sending data across the network between all the miners and the users. And that's why you can increase the throughput for that. Now, obviously, these techniques don't work in the Bitcoin world today. And there's a very good chance they're not going to work in the Bitcoin world in the foreseeable future. Um, But Bitcoin does have the Lightning Network, which is another type of scalability. So I do want to ask Taj, so obviously Taj was the inventor of the Lightning Network, um, you were thinking about a lot of these protocols back in 2015. Have you seen the evolution over the past five years? I mean, it's live now with, uh, I mean, last I checked it was 30,000 lightning nodes, but that's actually not a good stat because some of them are hidden. Have you found the evolution over the past five years of seeing your little baby be, you know, written up and designed and now it's deployed and implemented by a crazy um, yeah. Bitcoin army of developers? Yeah, I'm not. So it's it's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm really not as involved. Uh, I sort of, have been working on UTXO and, and other systems in Bitcoin. And I guess it's because there's so much development in Lightning. Um, and it's sort of like, well, everyone else is working on it. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it's if all these other people are working on it, maybe it doesn't make sense for me to work on it as much. And also because it's sort of like, I don't know, I, I guess, you know, because I sort of co-authored it with Joseph, it's like, well, I, it's sort of quote unquote mine, but it's not, right? It's, it's Lightning Network. Any, anyone can use it. And so it's kind of hard to work on it. Because it's like, well, you know, this was my thing, but no, it's, everyone else gets to use it. I don't know. I guess, you know, if Vitalik, if, if all these other people started working on Ethereum and you sort of disagreed with what they were doing, that might be kind of annoying because it's like, you know, you didn't, mm-hmm. not your network, but at the same time, it's like, well, I, I kind of came up with some of these things. Um, so so I've, I think it's awesome. I think, but there's a lot of things that I would change. And so that sort of like bugs me. So it's like, eh, you know, uh, other people are working on it. I'm going to focus on uh, this Utrexo and accumulator stuff. And who knows, maybe, you know, a year or two from now, once, once that's like taking off and people are using it, uh, work on some other thing. Um, 
just because, it, and I think it's sort of a good way to work on it because you don't want to have, uh, you know, you don't want to have people in charge, I guess. At least I don't want to be in charge of things like that. But but it, overall, it's it's really cool to see and it's really cool that people are using it. It did sort of weird me out in the beginning when people like have these little lightning emojis in their Twitter and like, like especially with the like Bitcoin cash and block size and it was like getting to be this like, Thing. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want to get involved in that. <laughs> but, uh, but technically, it's really cool. And, and like a lot of the stuff that uh, like Rusty and Lightning Labs and people are doing is really cool. Yeah. So one thing for Lightning I want to bring up as well is so Lightning, in my opinion, so we can all challenge this. I don't think Lightning's very good for payments. Uh, what I think Lightning's really good for is synchronizing two off-chain ledgers. So a really good example of this, there's a startup called ZBD doing game, you know, gaming on Lightning. But what's really cool about it is that I am playing like Street Fighter with someone else and we're fighting. Someone watching the game can scan a QR barcode. They can send sats to the game and then they can buy me a power up. But actually, you know, that's not really a payment. What they're really doing is they have a ledger on Blue Wallet, which is, I guess, in this case, fully custodial. And they have another custodial wallet that's a game. But they're using Lightning to synchronize the payment across the two different ledgers. And I think use cases like that are... Mostly unappreciated at the moment, but I think that's probably that synchronization between two ledgers. For me, I think it's going to be the killer thing for Lightning, and not necessarily people buying stuff in a candy shop. Plus, yeah, um, so I don't I, know. I just wanted to see what your thoughts might yeah, be on I, that. I definitely. Well, I am sort of surprised that exchanges aren't as supposed because because initially when working on it, I was like, we should talk to exchanges. Like this is the premier use case for this like instead of having a deposit or withdraw button you now have a like fund channel and like close channel button and you're not custodial right so you can still because that's what a lot of usage is 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 trading and exchanges um and it seems like great and i i did sort of think that that was how the network would sort of build up that you know coinbase would have a big node and kraken would have a big node and then like you know the the users would have channels to these exchanges that hasn't really happened. It is starting to, I think, and that would be really cool because that, to me, seemed like a great, um, a, a great use for it because you can get rid of the sort of custodial problem with all the exchanges. So hopefully that does go forward too. Yeah. So one thing I, I just want to add there is, um, so the, the idea there is that I'm an operator on Coinbase. There's these massive wheels. So you have coins in my service, but they don't always want to keep their coins in my service. And they set up a Lightning channel with me. They could quickly deposit, do a trade, come back, quickly withdraw, and they can minimize their trust in me. Um, That's sort of, I guess, what you're alluding to for that use case. What I do see, so I think there's two parts there. I think one of the use cases I see exchanges could adopt is you have like, you know, Bitstamp and maybe Bitfinex. They have a lightning channel in the middle, and they just, you know, support transferring coins back and forth between the exchanges, you know, because that's what most people use, you know, these cryptocurrencies for anyway. They just transfer Tether from exchange to exchange uh, that gets some arbitrage moment. And um, isn't that what, uh, sorry, sorry, just, sorry, just to jump in there. Isn't that also what liquid is pitched at doing as well? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So liquid is uh, basically a, a federation. Actually, maybe Andre, do you want to describe that since you're uh, working on that project? Yeah. yeah maybe um, compare the lightning, like the differences. Yeah, I could ask this a lot. So I guess I, I should, come up with like a simple punchy punchy one-liner um basically the the way that liquid works is liquid is a separate blockchain so everybody who participates in liquid there's kind of an unlimited number of people who can participate they take bitcoin they they peg it into the liquid chain 
by by which I mean they send the coins into the custody of a federation of of a, a quorum of uh, fifteen federation members, um, and then while coins are in the liquid network, basically they just move around on the liquid blockchain, and every block is signed by by a quorum of this federation by I think eleven of uh, by eleven of these fifteen participants. So the sign, 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 and then later when people want to move their coins back on the liquid blockchain, they basically raise a flag. They they have a special kind of transaction that says, "Please give me my coins back." And then the federation, who has physical custody of the coins on the Bitcoin side, will then send the coins to the right person. So if you were using Liquid such that the federation consisted of two people and those two people were the only users of the system, then it would be similar to a Lightning payment channel. It it would be the same model. Uh, But morally, the, the difference between Liquid and Lightning is that in... Lightning, the people who have custody of the coins are the actual counterparties of the coins. And in Liquid, the people who have custody of the coins is this this extra object, this federation. And the benefit of that is that you can have like arbitrary number of participants who are all acting in sync, and you don't need to have payment channels that are chained off of each other and, and worry <laughs> about uh, um, scalability issues related to that. Um, but then the trade-off, of course, and, and another benefit is that by having a separate chain of blocks, we can have confidential transactions and all of this uh, cool, like, whatever crypto shit or, or experiments we want to do. We can do that on Liquid. On Lightning, you sort of you have these individual payment channels, which are, are two people who are basically maintaining a state which consists of a valid Bitcoin transaction. And anyone can close up the channel by publishing the transaction to the chain. So you're largely, but not entirely, limited in Lightning to doing things that you can do on Bitcoin. Um, so like the, the Bitcoin technology capabilities is the same as the Lightning technology capabilities. And then also when you're connecting more than two people, there's a bit of a, a technical thing where you create these paths that are all linked to each other. Um, but the, the biggest difference, I think, I, I would say the biggest difference is the custody model, basically. In, in Lightning, your coins never leave your custody. Um, in Liquid, there is this, uh, uh, in Liquid, there's this uh, federation trust requirement. Oh, I think there's a collateral difference as well. So in Lightning, if I'm Coinbase and I have 1,000 channels, the collateral lockup oh. and management I have must be a headache. Where if you use a side chain like Liquid, the operator doesn't need any coins up front for the system. Yep, that, to that's run. exactly that's a good point. Coins um, you go. You're right. There's there's no the the collateral when you move coins into the system, you are putting up those coins, and then they are in control of the federation. And when you take them out, they come out of the federation. Um, and there's never any collateral beyond what's actually in the system. It's always yeah, it's always one to one, no prefunding. Awesome. Yeah, so actually, you, you just made me think of this. So um, maybe the good way to categorize is that you have a side chain like Liquid, and you're trusting the Federation, you know, care of any of those Federation members. A roll-up is like going a bit further where you trust the base chain for security as opposed to Federation. You know, you lock your coins into a smart contract, they get unlocked in the roll-up, but you still have this block producer who can really only censor your transaction. So if they censor the block or your transaction, you just withdraw via the base chain, you get out. Um, and then Lightning's on like a different angle. No one can really see my picture, I guess. So I'm using my hands to try to describe this. Lightning is sort of like, for me, is a nice way to synchronize these two different ledgers between side chains and uh, rule-ups. So if you're a Coinbase, for example, instead of having a you know a massive, huge channels of all your customers, you just run a side chain or you just run a, um, a rule-up. 
and then use lightning to jump in and out really quickly. To me, that seems like the ideal setup. I don't know if you guys have thought about that before. Um, it's a cool thought. In, in the um, original uh, sidechains white paper, that so was sort of block Blockstream's um, like announcement paper. Um, we speculate a little bit. I haven't looked at this paper since since I wrote it in 2014. But like near the end, we sort of speculate on future directions. Like, oh, if we had like fully general zero knowledge proofs, and you know, if we had support on the Bitcoin blockchain, then then we could do um, sidechains in this much more efficient or, or much better way where you have Bitcoin ultimately, or the main chain, whatever that is, ultimately enforcing all the all the transfers. And then you have these like magic, uh, at the time, unimaginable zero-knowledge proofs making that something that was tractable. And that is that is very similar, I guess, on a high level to what rollups are doing. That's a neat that I hadn't considered that, that connection. Patalik, do you have any comments? You're quite quiet now. You haven't directed any questions at me yet, so and I'm just uh, happy to listen. Um, no, and I think like payments and the uh, kind of plasma rollup family. Like, I, I definitely don't like thinking of plasma and rollup as being the same thing, but they're like they're, they're different, but they're definitely more similar to each other than they are to channels. So, like, they have different benefits and uh, kind of different properties, right? So like channels, for example, are vastly superior when you have repeated transactions, right? So like any kind of kind of payment for a subscription and uh, make a lot, a lot more sense. And definitely a uh, kind of se- uh, settlement between like institutional actors that each represent a lot of people. Like that's another one of those cases where you have a lot of repeated transactions. And so anything channel-based ends up making a, a huge amount of sense. Um Another kind of important benefit of channel-based solutions is that you get instant uh, transaction confirmation as opposed to having to wait for the uh, transaction to get in, some transaction to get included in a block to get a some uh, degree of security. Um, but on the other hand, the weaknesses are like one, you know, it's like conceptually more complex. You have these kind of routing issues. You have the capital lockup issues. I mean, you have. Like potentially even a trade-off between uh, the system becoming centralized versus the system having very high cap- uh, capital lockup and all of these things versus on the other side of something like a, a roll-up. It's like, or, or, or even a plasma. Uh, uh, well, the ideal is a ZK roll-up because you can get all of the properties with like basically no capital on top of what's uh, stuck in uh, inside of the systems, right? If there's $100 inside the thing, you need $100 to secure it. With uh, optimistic rollups in Plasma, you can technically get away with the, the, the same thing, but it's uh, it's better if you have more um, collateral, basically, because that way what can happen is you can uh, kind of buy up people's withdrawal slots in progress, right? Like when you start a withdrawal, someone else, uh, like normally the withdrawal will take like say seven days or 14 days or whatever to process, but someone else can just uh, kind of buy up your withdrawal slot that would give you 99.99% of uh, the amount. Uh, and then they would uh, uh, kind of put up the capital for the, uh, for the two weeks themselves. And so, you know, you'd get the um, instant withdrawal experience and uh, they'd get like some, some interest for putting up the capital for that, for that period of time. Uh, so it depends on the situation. It depends on the use case. And like in the long term, I can, I'm expecting kind of all three of the design patterns to be popular in some form or another. Yeah, um, if you guys want, actually, what I can do now is I can summarize the discussion we've had on the podcast 
then everyone can have like a final word if you want, and then maybe Peter can wrap everything up. Um, <laughs> maybe that's worth doing now. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> I know it's a bit of a long episode. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, it's it's ten to one in the morning. Yeah, it's I can. <laughs> it's late for you and I. Hey, Paddy. <laughs> um, I had a nap earlier. Yeah, I had a nap at five p.m. for this because I knew it was going to be late. Um. Okay, I can just summarize basically what we've spoke about for the past two hours. You know, we started with the origin story and the narrative. Bitcoin was introduced to the world as um, a system to protect people from fractional reserve banking and limited inflation. Satoshi was not very shy about that. One thing we didn't talk about was Satoshi also implemented a casino in the original client. Uh, I don't really understand why he did that, but he did. It's been removed, I guess, since... Uh, later on, the story started to emerge as a sort of peer-to-peer payment network that was this decentralized, anonymous, scalable network. That was when I got in 2013, 2012, and obviously that wasn't true at all. That's not the most traceable currency in the world. But then this third application started evolving on Bitcoin that was like building these applications on top. This is like Satoshi Dice, MasterCoin, ColorCoin, OmniLayer that basically powered Tether for a lot of years. And I guess that's what uh, you know Vitalik and Ethereum picked up on. And when they started doing Ethereum, they were going to build on Bitcoin, but they built enough metacritical mass and they just went and deployed Ethereum. Then we sort of spoke about, you know, the Frankenstein systems. Both of them have sort of like grassroots, you know, effort and they all have these very quirky bugs that make them both really awkward and difficult to deal with sometimes. You know, Bitcoin had lots of early bugs. It still has some bugs because you can't really get rid of them, like the signature, for example. Uh Ethereum has lots of different attacks that we didn't even really explore, to be honest. There's lots of problems in the solidity we could have explored. The biggest issue is basically a security audit because people deploy these smart contracts in production a lot of the time, and then you get the security audit afterwards, or it's just too expensive. You don't get it done. But obviously, there's a lot more work towards formally verifying these contracts and building better tooling to get rid of most of the common bugs like Viper that Vitalik was working on. And then going down through that, we spoke about scalability of the network. Bitcoiners are like assembly programmers. They know every nitty detail. They don't want any computation on Bitcoin. They just want Bitcoin to do signatures in small conditions, and that's it. And even with signatures, they don't want to verify 10 signatures. They want to compress it to one signature. So all you have are signatures and nothing else. Um, but a lot of work on Bitcoin around scalability, you know, we, they didn't have the chains, the consensus rules. They didn't have the chains, the protocol. They just made the software way more efficient. So now you can still verify the blockchain in like a day. Um, you know, as a good effort in their part. In the Ethereum world, it sounds like there is a lot of optimization on the hardware. And one metric was the uncle rate. I won't explain what the uncle rate is, but it went up for a bit and then back down to 7%. That demonstrated the software got more efficient because there's less forks on the network. But a lot of the changes are focused on the protocol. You know, Eve 2 is taking a lot longer than everyone expected. And, um, and then we went on the you know, off-chain scalabilities as rule-off versus lightning. I think that's basically the summary of the entire podcast in a very nut- nutshell. Uh, Vitalik, do you want to go first with some last words of what you sort of want to leave with? Oh, and one last thing. The whole point of this discussion was really to highlight the differences and the benefits of both networks. And hopefully you'll all see that they both are complementary and have different goals. Um, I don't really need to illustrate those goals now, but they both have different goals. Uh, Vitalik, do you want to just have some final words? Oh, I see. I'm... Uh... I guess uh, it's a reverse alphabetical order this time around. Um, <laughs> no, again, I, uh, 
I definitely agree with all that. I mean, I think like, there is definitely a, in some uh, some different goals going into a lot of the systems, uh, the, the two systems. So I think there is also a kind of a lot of shared values as well. I mean, you know, like at the core, we are both uh, trying to build a kind of maximally trustless and uh, secure systems and um, you know, like help people do things without having to uh, kind of put a like, basically give all of their um, all of their assets to a centralized inter- uh, intermediary for the duration as much as possible and uh, there's definitely kind of different applications that are being emphasized at different kind of security trade-offs on the edges but i think whether it's kind of ideologically or even technologically as we've seen with uh, you know like how both networks use the secp library for example there's definitely a fairly big kind of shared core and that's uh, something that probably is important uh, not to forget as well. Uh, so I'm just looking forward to, um, you know, the, the next 10 years and seeing how uh, the rest of the technology ends up getting rolled out and how the ecosystems uh, have come to fruition. Uh, Taj, do you want to go next? I'll just go sure. uh, yeah, I can... in reverse order now. Sure. Um, the, yeah. So I, I actually sort of worked a bit a little bit on ethereum you know before there was the whole sale and stuff like you know some of the hash function they looked at uh, for their proof of work looked at and i you know sort of talked to people back then um you know but have been working mostly on on bitcoin but it is it is interesting i definitely do read like eth or i don't know how to say it, ethresearch.ch or whatever um and try to keep up and and it is to some extent there's a bit of a loss because of the sort of different philosophies and different things there because there's not much communication between the two groups. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it makes sense to some extent. Uh, but like, you know, at a conference in, you know, fe- February before the whole COVID thing, I remember talking to some people who were working on stateless clients in Ethereum and it was like, Oh, we should talk about this more. And then, you know, we, we left and we're sort of in different worlds. Um, so I think it would be cool if, if we, you know, got to learn about, you know, how Ethereum, solves similar similar problems to bitcoin has because at the core they are dealing with like very similar issues right like we both have these big level db things with like millions and millions of entries and it's like okay how do you scale these things um they're taking very different approaches but you know i think for it, it makes sense for people who are interested in bitcoin so for example you know this this podcast is a good example where yeah i'm i'm mostly interested in bitcoin but i definitely keep an eye on ethereum and, and try to read what they're working on and how they're doing it. So I think that, and, and hopefully vice versa, right. And people in Ethereum can look at what Bitcoin's doing and take libraries in both ways. So hopefully, you know, it can be a, you know, mutually beneficial thing. I think right now it is, it is somewhat standoff E like, and there isn't a ton of interaction. I don't know. Maybe that'll change in the future. Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll go the, next. Uh, the comment about there being a lack of communication and that being kind of an unfortunate thing. Um, I, I also speak to a, a fair number of people in, in the Ethereum world and generally in the altcoin, altcoin development world. Usually uh, I'll just encounter them uh, when I'm visiting friends in Boston in the MIT area. I'll just sort of wind up in rooms full of people who I don't otherwise tend to talk to online or at conferences or whatever. Um, and part of the reason I, I would say, or, or certainly a large part of the reason that I 
don't uh, uh, tend to reach across the aisle so much is that a lot of, especially in, in like 2017, really, there's a lot of ex- irrational exuberance. There's a lot of like scam coins and, and things like this that for a long time we're using Ethereum as a basic platform. And as Vitalik has talked about how, how things get more expensive and maybe like bad ideas get priced out and unfortunately maybe some, some good ideas, things certainly have, have calmed down and, and the Ethereum world is, is much less... Um, um, irritating than it, than it has been in the past there's a lot of like cool like genuine research you know versus people who have like white papers full of fluff where they've claimed to have solved problems that are impossible to solve and, and so forth and who are raising like billions of dollars um in exchange for for just like this kind of fluff um we've seen that sort of go away from the wider cryptocurrency space um since 2017 and in particular i think there's a lot less of it in the ethereum world and in this place, I'm really excited by what I see. I'm really excited by the kind of research into different plasmas. I'm excited by the research into off-chain stuff. I'm excited by the ZK roll-up stuff. I'm excited by zero-knowledge proof development in general. Um, so one thing, we didn't go too much into this kind of philosophical disagreements in this discussion, uh, for better or worse. But certainly, I, I would say, Vitalik, almost everything that, that you guys propose for ETH2, I think, is just like you're biting off more than you can chew and like it's never going to happen. And I'm really glad that y'all disagree with that assessment and that you're driving forward the kind of basic research that is needed to create these things. Because if we have efficient zero-knowledge proofs, so if we can achieve that holy grail, then, uh, then that would be incredible for everybody, uh, including Bitcoin uh, and including a lot of the research that I do work on day-to-day. All right. Well, listen, I'll, uh, I'll close out by saying I, I, I pretty much didn't understand 90% of what was discussed this evening. Um, but it was. Uh, I'm glad everyone could come together and have uh, a chat. And it was useful for you. Or it kind of proves something for me actually that um, that actually this stuff, some of it is way too technical for certain people who might be investing. And actually, I don't think people do always need to hear this. I think sometimes, actually, perhaps like a show sometimes whether I do with you, Taj, or uh, or you, uh, Andrew, where I get you to explain the, the fundamental, the basics, the simple bits I need to know. Uh, helps people helps people to have that like kind of like limited small amount of knowledge. I'll be interested to see the feedback on this. I I think there'll be some people who'll be great, like really glad to hear it. The fact that they've got you know Taj and Polster and Vitalik all together, I think it's going to be mind blowing for some people. And I think some other people may switch off and go that that was too much for me. So it'll be in, really interesting to hear the feedback. But if um you know, if uh, people like yourself, Taj and Andrew, you can benefit from some of the research and perhaps build some relationships out of it, then I think that's a good thing. But yeah, let's uh, see what the feedback is. But thank you all. It's one in the morning. I'm shot. I know Paddy's going to be a little bit as well. Um, but yeah, I appreciate all you all coming on and I wish you the best. And let's see what, what people think of this. Okay, what did you think of that? Is your head hurting? <laughs> yeah, that got pretty high level sometimes. And honestly, I was lost for a lot of it. But I think most of you would expect that anyway. Now, I think some of the techies will have gone a lot for this. And hopefully some of you less technical, you may even enjoy it as well. You may get something from it. Now, after doing a couple of shows on Bitcoin versus Ethereum, my views haven't really changed that much. I wasn't a maximalist and I don't really like to label myself as one. But I don't have Ethereum. I don't hold Ethereum. Look, I don't think it's a scam the way some people think it is. I think it's used for a lot of scams, a lot of bullshit. I don't fundamentally see a blockchain itself as a scam and some people argue differently. But nothing's changed. I have no interest in buying or holding Ethereum, but it was definitely a useful exercise for me. But it will be back to Bitcoin now. 
I think my little venture into Ethereum here has done what it needed to do. But you know what? I hope you got something out of it. I hope it was helpful to all of you. Um, and yeah, Jesus, it was a long enough show, so I'll shut up now. Any feedback, you know you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And outside of that, have a great week, and I'll see you all soon.